This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Maximilian Potter and Richard Stasekel. Now, Max has spent his career in journalism, and although he's interviewed some of the biggest names in show business for some of the most well-known men's magazine, his true passion lies in storytelling within the military. Richard received the Purple Heart whilst in the Marines, then after recovering from his wounds, re-enlisted, this time joining the Army, ultimately becoming a Green Beret. Now, Richard was recently diagnosed with cancer, and this is where he and Max's paths intersect. And as you will hear, they discuss one of the best-kept secrets in the military, which is the Ferrers Doctrine, which prevents our men and women in uniform from pursuing legal action after an illness or an injury outside of combat. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Maximilian Potter and Richard Stasko. Enjoy. Well, Max and Richard, I want to start by welcoming you both to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thanks for having us, James. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. So you have got two very, very different paths. So I'm going to walk you through each of yours kind of step by step um, chronologically. And then we'll obviously get to the point where, where you two met and the Ferris Doctrine and some of these important things we need to talk about. So I would love to start with you, Richard. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Oh, uh, so I was born and raised in California, San Jose, uh, to be exact. Um, my, my family is pretty much comprised of me. I'm the youngest, my older brother, and then my sister in the middle. Uh, parents still married, still together. Uh, pretty, pretty typical household family, you know, growing up. I mean, we did vacations as a family, dinners as a family, but uh, we, we definitely come from a background of kind of hellions to some degree. So, you know, we, I think we, uh, my parents included, they gave their parents a run for their money and I gave mine a run for their money as well. But um, my, my folks were both born and raised in uh, Ohio. Um, one was born in Kent, one was born in Akron. And then um, when they met, they, uh, they decided, I guess, to spend their life together. They kind of traveled the upper part of the country, working on ranches and farms, and then uh, ended up in Alaska and uh, worked out there and then settled in California to, you know, start having a family and make a living and everything else. And um, I didn't we weren't a very military family. Um, my, my grandfather, my, my father's side was a merchant Marine during world war two. But, uh, we, we just, we didn't grow up like that. I mean, we were patriotic, but you know, my parents were borderline hippies. So, you know, talk of military stuff like that. Wasn't really, wasn't really in the cards kind of thing. My, my uncle, my father's brother, he, he, uh, joined cause he was going to get drafted 
And then uh, he, so he volunteered and put his, rather than being told to have a gun and go to harm's way, he was a tech guy. So he joined the Air Force and did what he knew he was good at and did computer stuff. And then, um, yeah, so really just went through school and everything else. Wasn't the strongest student. My sister and brother were more of the brains and uh, I was more of a free spirit running around kind of guy. But uh, just kind of tried that out for a while and then ended up in the military eventually. Well, you said about your parents, my wife's from North Canton. I was literally there two weeks ago. So okay. beautiful yeah, yeah. place. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we, we haven't gone back since um, all my grand, grandparents are all passed away now, but I, I definitely miss it there for sure. Now, what about athletics? What were you playing and doing during the high school age? Mm. We, we all grew up doing the normal baseball, football, basketball. I kind of deviated at uh, some point in middle school, started skateboarding more or less. And then um, I picked up volleyball in high school. And then um, my sister did the same thing, dance and gymnastics and uh, stuff like that. So pretty standard kind of stuff. But um, we kind of we kind of grew out of it. Well, I grew out of it towards high school. I was just more interested in just not being so regimented with things. <laughs> so the military was a perfect choice then. Right. <laughs> it turned out I needed the regiment. So. <laughs> and speaking of that, I mean, well, I want to want to get into your career in a minute, but we'll go to Max in just a moment before we do. But just one more thing. When you were again in that school age, were you always dreaming of the Marines or the military or was there something else prior to that? I, I didn't have a clue what the military was. I, I remember when my brother was in high school, they were still, I think, sending letters to, to kids, you know, that were coming of age that, you know, are you thinking about the military? And I think I overheard a conversation at once between my, my folks and, and him. And that was, I mean, not enough to even know what it was. And then I remember uh, one of my neighbors, we lived in a cul-de-sac about two houses down. They were, the, fo- the parents were from Iraq, born and raised. And then uh, the, the Iraq war kicked off, uh, you know, the first one. And so I'm, you overhear some stuff, this and that. But um, like I said, my since my uncle had been drafted and my grandfather was a merchant marine, my father was not very for it. You know, he he knew and he lived. He was he was in the area during the uh, Kent State riots, you know, the protests, whatever you want to call them. And so, you know, they loved their country. They supported it, but they didn't really want to be a part of that world. You know, they and I think it was because they knew what it could break, you know, being a part of during Vietnam era, especially. And um, so, no, I really had no, no clue, no interest, never gave it probably any thought in my life, to be honest. Brilliant. All right. Well, let's get on to Max's kind of timeline first, and then we'll come back to your military journey. So again, tell me about your, your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Um. I grew up in uh, a working class to working poor section of Philadelphia. That's uh, the neighborhood would be Northeast Philadelphia. Um, he, mom, dad, I have one brother younger by four years. Um, again, working class, working poor family. Uh, neither of my folks, you know, finished high school. Uh, my dad got his GED through the army. He was hundred uh, first airborne. He was in the screaming Eagles. And, um, you know, my mom, uh, got her a GED eventually, and she worked as, a, a secretary, uh, in a couple of different capacities for the 
for lack of a better phrase, Philadelphia city government. Um, and, you know, this sounds cliche, but it's true. Like we, my brother and I, my brother's name is Michael. Um, you know, we didn't, we didn't have much, but we didn't know what we were missing. And what we had a lot of was uh, love and support. And my parents, my father in particular, uh, he's one of the, my, my dad's my hero basically. So my dad is like one of the smartest guys I know. Uh, he just didn't have any of the support and advantages that he actually made available to me. So um, I think in many ways for whatever su successes or, or triumphs I've had in my life, um, he could have had those if he had had uh, better, better parenting and, and better support as a kid himself. So there's been times in my life where I feel like there's a part of me where I kind of owe it to him to do, to do the best I can where I can. Um, and so we, I offer this as also as a preface to say empirically, just by definition, my parents weren't particularly educated, right? They're, my dad's, you can't run game on Al Potter. It's just not possible, right? The guy's got a PhD in street smarts. Um, and he was always sort of my sounding board and compass for all things, you know, ethics and common sense, you know, I'd ask my dad, but there wasn't like a push, you know, for, and at one point I wanted to go into the, to the service. And one of my best friends in the world, which is actually why I have tend to cover um, a fair amount of military stories, related stories over the past, you know, 25 years, one of my best friends growing up um, went to the Marines and, and actually, I ended up going to do a, a piece uh, in Iraq in Al Anbar, and I was where where Richard was actually, and my buddy, his name is uh, Tim McMenamin, and uh, just a, an incredibly humble, honorable, smart, badass dude that I met when we were in high school. We, so we were from the same neighborhood. Well, let me backtrack. Like I was saying, my parents weren't. They promoted getting an education, but they didn't really know what that meant. And I happen to have a, a family member, um, a cousin, because of age, I called him my uncle, and he happened to be a Catholic chaplain, and he was in the military. <laughs> and it was largely because of him that he nudged me to consider coming out of eighth grade in all boys Jesuit high school in Philadelphia, and it's called St. Joe's. And... Um, if not for him, I probably would not have known the school existed. And I've said many times over that those four years at that school changed my life. I mean, I'm about as much of a lapsed Catholic as you'll find. And I credit the Jesuits for that. And I mean that in a highly complimentary sense. You know, it was because of their pushing to think critically about the world that maybe I got to think a little bit too critically about everything, including, you know, some of the moves the Catholic Church was making over the years. Um, but anyhow, I, I met a bunch of other guys from my neighborhood um, or neighborhoods around me, like there was the, to be blunt, there was the super rich kids and then there was us. And so we kind of found our way to one another. And um, this, this kid that I, this guy that I just mentioned, uh, Tim, Tim McMenamin, he's the guy that went in the Marines and through him and because of him, largely because of him, I, I would follow stories perhaps a little more closely um, that I might otherwise have followed. Um, so coming out of school, St. Joe's, I, I knew I wanted to write. Um, I think like like most 
young kids that want to write, the cliche is everybody wants to do, you know, the great American novel. And that wasn't really in the cards for me because I had to figure, I knew I had to figure out a way to write and pay bills, you know, like <laughs> that's just the way it was going to go. And the, the Jesuits have this, uh, you know, credo that's, it was an all boys school. So it was be a man for others, but it's a person for others. And it's not like a horse shitty slogan. Like it's really woven into the fabric of the curriculum and what you do. And it basically, you're just trying to think about others and, you know, really basic stuff on how to be a decent human being, you know, um, think, think of your fellow man, think of your fellow human and, and how cheesy as this may sound, how you can make the world, you know, a better place, um, you know, nudge the universe in a positive direction. And to oversimplify, it was sort of a natural organic migration, if you're a writer, to go to journalism. And I didn't know for, for you know, I just set up my origin story, right? So it's not like I could call my uncle who who could give me an internship at some, you know, publication. I just kind of had to, like many of us, right? I'm, I'm not an anomaly. This is the, the, I'm one of many who go into journalism to do this. And so... Uh, you know, I go to an undergraduate school and then I coming out of undergraduate school, I had done an internship or two, but I still didn't really know what, what it meant to go into journalism. So I went to Northwestern. Basically, I figured I was just, if I bought a fancy degree, you know, it would help me get, you know, a better job. Um, in some ways it did, in some ways it didn't. Um, and so coming out of journalism school, uh, I went into magazines and, you know, I, I, uh, the first magazine job I had was with a, a magazine that no longer exists, which is if you're 51 years old and you've been in magazines for a while, you say that a lot, right? Like the first magazine I worked for was a magazine called Premier, covered movies. Uh, I moved, I moved to LA for the first time. And, um, you know, then I went back to my home covered movies for a while. And uh, but but it wasn't like just celebrity profiles like Premiere at the time was a, a place where journalism was done. It had, you know, really terrific, you know, journalists, uh, John Richardson, Peter Biskin, David Foster Wallace wrote, wrote did a piece for the magazine. Um, but stuff happened and, and I left. I went back to my hometown in Philly and I worked for Philly Mag. And then it was like. GQ, then it was a city magazine in Denver, then it was Esquire, and more or less than an affiliation with Vanity Fair. And that's kind of when um, I had the good fortune of meeting Richard's day school. Beautiful. Well, I want to get back to Richard, but just before we do, um, the person who connected us was Josh Brolin. He had Correct. a pretty interesting story of how how's best to put this. He is a very astute man and realized that maybe this wasn't your passion project, this particular interview. So and that led him to learning about the work that you truly adore. So if you want, I'd love to hear your perspective of that story because I thought it was pretty, uh, pretty awesome. Sure. So I think, I think James, just to make sure I, I understand you correctly, what I think Josh was saying is when I met him and I was profiling him, that wasn't my passion project. Is that what he was saying? Yes, he could tell yeah, that, yeah. that you were kind of, that there was probably something else that you were truly passionate about that maybe this was paying the bills for. <laughs> it was That's kind of correct. how it was yeah. related to me. Yeah, and you nailed it. Like, Josh is a really astute dude. Um, and 
the way it works in summary in magazines, if you're fortunate, and I can't emphasize that enough, if you're fortunate to have uh, a staff job of any kind with a magazine, part of the way that they justify, you know, your payroll on a masthead like that is they send you out to do the celebrity profiles so they don't have to pay a freelancer. And essentially what you're, what you're doing as, as the staff writer that goes out and does them, at least this was my view is you do those profiles and it, it earns you the right and buys you some time to really focus on some, in my opinion, um, actual journalism stories, things that you want to do. And I, I don't, I'm not going to remember this exact. Well, Josh, I profiled Josh for Esquire. This is when I was at Esquire. And I think it was in 2017 or 2018. You could remind me, James, because it was pegged to this particular movie um, about the Arizona uh, yeah, smoke only, jumpers. Only the Brave, the Summer of Brolin. Only the Brave. Four right. And that was when he did the first interview with me. That's why it made me you know, realize he was a pretty amazing human because he had probably his busiest at least promo year ever. He was in four different movies in the same year and he still came on this random firefighters podcast. So uh, yeah, a little side note there. Yes. Yeah, so, so whatever year that was, um, Esquire sends me, I always got the guys, like I, I, I joked with friends, like I was the bro filer, you know, like they, <laughs> I just always got dudes. And, um, you know, Josh is, Josh is a really, a really smart guy um he he has a he's a quick study he sizes up the schoolyard i think pretty quickly and at one point he's <laughs> i'm paraphrasing the sentiments here <laughs> but he's like he's like neither one of us really want to be here doing this right and i was like nah that's that's probably true you know like and he said uh he said something like you're going to come here. You're going to spend some time with me. Oh, and he also said, there's this other thing when you do celebrity profiles that most of them have like a celebrity wrangler, right? So this is the person that sort of brokers the, the profile that you do with the celebrity. And usually there's some sort of contrived activity, like, you know, you're going to go play badminton or go horseback riding or something. And it's, you know, then it becomes like a metaphor or a theme. That's what they're, they're trying to serve it up. They're trying to tee it up for you. And Josh was like, yeah, I'm not doing any of that bullshit, right? Like, we're just, <laughs> we're just, we're just going to talk. And I was like, that's fine by me, dude. Like, however, so we sat up on the roof of, of uh, his home in a, in a beach town uh, over a period of two days. And we just talked and he started by saying like, basically neither of us wants, you don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. And it was like, a, it was an odd icebreaker coming from the subject, you know? And uh, I said, yeah, pretty much, you know, you nailed it. And he said, you're going to talk to me for a couple of days. You're going to write what you're going to write. Some of it will be true. Some of it will be what you want me to be. Some of it will be what other people tell you that I am. But it's not going to be a real profile of me. And I thought that that was just a really, um, a really smart, uh, honest perspective on what it was that we were doing. And we had a conversation like that. And so I think, and it's very, I've been doing this a while and um, you know, it's been a fair share of celebrity profiles. And since you brought up Josh, uh, he's been a friend, you know, he's, he's, he may be the only, I've had good relationships like with, with others over the years, but none that I would even apply the the friend word to. 
and he's been a friend. And, you know, it's because of him actually, right, that that he put us in touch. Um, he read the piece and, you know, he, 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 you know, he reads, he comments on a lot of my stuff and, and, and it's, it's welcomed, you know, to have, to have a really smart perspective on anything you do. And certainly from a talent like him who reads shit all day, every day, um, and he doesn't mince words, right? So if he, he thinks you, you fumbled something, he's going to tell you, um, but yeah, so I'm I'm babbling, but that's what went down with with Josh for sure. Yeah, beautiful. Well, then, because it's a it's a real story, and then you, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. You started talking to him about the 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 passion for the military journalism, and that was kind of your real burning desire. Yeah, I we we talked about. It. He more or less said, you know, what do you, where's your passions lie? And we had a conversation similar to the ones that we're having right now, the three of us. You know, it was pretty candid, and um, he. I asked him, like, what do you really want to be working on? You know, um, and it's in that profile in Esquire. There was some stuff like he was pretty candid about that. If he had some do overs, he he would probably he might choose differently. Um, but yeah, he I think if I if I if I could go so far to say, I think we understood one another and, and I think we had a mutual respect for one another. And um yeah. He's he's been a, he's been a supportive guy, and uh, I'm doesn't surprise me that he's having the success that he's had. And we don't have to get into it here, but you know, you can. He's very supportive of of people like Richard, you know, in all in all capacities of of sort of uh, selfless individuals, both for communities and country. Um, which is why he did that movie, Only the Brave, you know, about firemen who lost their lives. That's the kind of guy that he is. Absolutely, yeah. And the, the people didn't realize he actually volunteered for a few seasons as a firefighter. He did the forward for my book, you know, which, again, this is a man who's reading scripts constantly to pull that from a thousand directions. And he took the time not even just to do a forward. Like, he read every single episode, sent a lot of them back saying, you can do better, give me critiques and even the audio book, he gave me some some feedback. So, yeah, and he's supporting all kinds of incredible people. So I just want to put that because even though, sadly, a lot of these titles are well-deserved, some of the the shallow two-dimensional elements of some of these celebrities, there are some incredible human beings that happen to be famous for whatever it is they do. And I think it's important that we you know, highlight them as well. They're already in front and center, but people know them for sometimes the wrong reasons. And there's some, you know, beautiful human beings out there that happen to be on screen or sing or a sports stars. Yeah, James, you reminded me, I forgot that profile because of the, the movie was about firefighters. I'd say a third of that piece was, uh, I went back and I talked to his, like his supervisors and his, that for lack of a better phrase, and his colleagues from that, um, volunteer fire department you know he josh was like in the middle of nowhere i think it was new mexico maybe if memory serves something like new mexico right he's living in a trailer um you know going to the firehouse just like trying to like like a little kid almost like trying to just find his way in to get on the truck like he wants to get out there and he did he ended up for a few years going out and, and doing the real deal absolutely all right well then rich bringing you back in Tell me, you know, you weren't thinking about the military at, at first, you know, what made you choose the Marines initially and then kind of walk me through at least the the kind of boot camp and first deployment? Uh, so to be honest, I, 
kind of going back into my life, I, I was a very fortunate kid. Uh, we, we were not rich by any means, but my, my parents, they worked to the bone to provide us with everything they could. Uh, they were, they were phenomenal people, but, um, you know, we were always taught and told get good grades in high school, go to college. That's the way it is or should be. And, um, so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go to college. Wasn't very interested in school, but they they helped me go to college. I went down to Irvine Community College for a little bit in Southern California. And I mean, I had the easiest schedule anybody could ever have. Like they weren't like, you will take six classes. I think I signed up for one, you know? And, <laughs> and it got to the point where it was like, I just wasn't even interested in going to one. I just found myself actually going up and down the coast to all my friends who were in like, San Luis Obispo and and, uh, and and all the other big colleges that were going to school and just partying with them on off time. And uh, it got to a point where it was like, I always knew I was fortunate. Like, you know, it wasn't like I was just spoiled rotten and a brat. Like I was just, I knew I was lucky. And um, it got to a point where I was like, this is just a waste of time and money for everybody, teachers, parents, everybody. So I had two buddies from high school that actually had joined the army maybe two months prior. I talked to them right out of basic and they were like, best thing I ever did. I love it. Like, Oh my gosh. Cause we were all kind of the same type of people. And, um, I, I think I, I flew home one, one time and I uh, went to a recruiter's office. I was like, I'll just see what this is about. I don't know anything. And, um, kind of went and talked and then, um, but, what really sold me on the whole thing was um, it was uh, Max. I'm drawing a blank here, but what was it? it was uh, was it the New Year's? You, New Year's, you, right? And uh, I was watching that movie U five seven one, and uh, remember having a couple of drinks and sitting there just thinking about how lucky my life is and how great things really are. And uh, there was a scene where one of the crewmen of the sub has to like turn the air valve because they were sinking and they were all going to die. And uh, he, he killed himself. I'm not killed, you know, like that. He just, he sacrificed his life to save the crew. And I, it hit me like a Mack truck out of nowhere. And it was like, where are these people at? Like these people really exist. You know, this, because the story, you know, the movie's based off a true story and everything. I was like, that's unreal. And, and uh, it was just, I knew at that moment, it was like, that's where I want to be. Where are those people? I want to find them. That's who I want to be friends with. Those are who, you know, I admire these people so much for that thought process. And, uh, and so it all kind of just worked itself out. I went to a recruiter's office and, uh, (laughs) to be honest, I actually started in the air force and, uh, because it was, it was the first office when you go into the building and, uh, air force, I went to air force, took the test, but the guy would never show up. And then uh, Navy and Army were in the back of the building, and I showed up. I kept showing up, showing up, and finally uh, the Marine Corps recruiter just caught me. He was like, "Hey, what are you doing?" So we started talking, and every time I came back, he was there. And you know, I was like, "This guy's always here. Like, that's a step." So nothing against the Air Force, but they just didn't put the work in. <laughs> they probably had and, the uh, Air Force guy tied I, up in the back. <laughs> it, it makes sense now that I know more of why he wasn't really there, but. Uh, <laughs> And uh, so I just, it, the Marine Corps recruiter just caught me and, you know, there's no denying the uniforms and the way they are. They're, they're undeniably just remarkable at what they do. 
I have nothing but love for when you need something done with the least amount of money or material necessary, ring course who you need, you know? And uh, so I just started talking. And before I knew it, I was, um, I took the ASVAB test, signed up, and I was actually going to do crash fire rescue with like firefighter on the airfield. And uh, got all the way up to the day I was leaving. And actually, I had convinced a buddy to join with me because <laughs> I figured if you're going down, you might as well bring somebody with you, you know? So, I what a true friend, friend you are. What yeah. a true friend you are. <laughs> hey, I think it worked out for him in the end. But, <laughs> but uh, so we, the, the, and he picked, I forget what he, he was like a crew chief or something. And, uh, you know, we didn't know anything. So we were like, all right, we're going to find something that's hard, but not hard. And, uh, and I was lying to myself. I knew that's not the kind of person I was. And then the day before I left, I called a recruiter and I said, uh, you need to put me in the infantry. And he was like, no, no, no. We don't want to do this. I was like, no, I really do. I don't know why. And after a couple minutes, he finally was just like, all right, man, it's your, it's your life, it's your career. And I was like, all right, I appreciate it. And then uh, it, it, we went on from there. And my buddy and I, we were supposed to kind of go through together. You can kind of do it together, if you will. And then uh, we split instantly. And it was like, oh, yeah, this is what I picked. <laughs> so <laughs> he went off a different direction. And uh, and I, I was pretty much in there with all infantry guys and I had my entire life ripped from me and built back up from scratch. I mean, they take it all from you and start at zero. And, uh, I was a kid that needed it to be honest. And, uh, I didn't unwelcome it. It was just a, I was a challenge. That's for sure. I think my mom tells a story, even after I graduated the recruiter or not recruiters, the Drill, uh, drill instructor went up to her and was like, you know, your son was definitely a challenge. <laughs> uh, I like to know things, you know, which in the Marine Corps is not all about telling you everything. They just want you to do stuff. But um, but I enjoyed it very much. But, uh, man, I, I had uh, my senior drill instructor. He was – so I had, I had three black drill instructors. One was from Louisiana, 6'6", about 280, just – a dominant towering individual. The other one I think was five ten, and just, I think this guy lived in a gym and ate weights for breakfast. <laughs> and then the other one was a comedian, a little tiny 180 pound, five foot four comedian. And then we had one other guy um, that was just meaner than hell. And uh, you couldn't win. One, one was making you laugh because he would practice his stand up comic stuff on you. <laughs> and then the rest would just destroy you. And uh, looking back on it, it was, man, it was so much fun. I don't regret one bit of it. So where did you find yourself deployed after you came out of boot camp? Uh, so I joined prior to 9-11. No idea. Um, like I said, I didn't know any of this stuff. I didn't know what it entailed. I know when I got there, I was enjoying it a lot. I mean, we, you know, every Monday you were out in the woods and sleeping in the field till Friday. You walked everywhere you went. And, um, it was a lot of fun. And I remember we were actually going, I was a machine gunner at the time. Um, and we were in our perspective or uh, schools getting like more advanced education when nine 11 happened. I was sitting in a child hall and watched uh, on TV. And then uh, j just like in the movies, they pull you outside and it's like, all right, we're going to war, you know? And it was like, nah, yeah, like, this ain't real. And uh, they kept stressing it, and then um, we kept gearing up and getting ready. And 
before I knew it, our, our turn came up. Um, so I didn't, I didn't hit the invasion invasion. I was elsewhere doing other stuff. And then, so we went over right, literally like right after the invasion and ended up in uh, Al-Ambar in Ramadi um, for the first deployment. And uh, when we got there, they were like, oh, the war is over, hearts and minds. We're going to pass out candy and <laughs> hug babies and then shake women's hands and and uh, all kinds of stuff. And it was, it was, I don't know if they were lying to us or they just really were convinced that it was over. But, um, but then it was right around the time where the, the stuff happened in uh, Haditha. No, it was like the, con- the contractors right next door. There were other big uh, skirmish that happened. Oh, I'm drawing a blank right now, but um, with the contractors that got killed and then they invaded yeah. uh, Fallujah. When they invaded Fallujah. Fallujah, they all left and came over to, to Ramadi and said hello to us. And um, it was it was the Wild West for a while. And then uh, it, was, it was bad. I mean, we were so unprepared and not ready. And then um, – I'd actually was with a sniper team and we had been compromised and due to reasons beyond my control, we, we decided not to move. And then uh, later when everything went real bad, uh, we ended up getting uh, ratted out by a lady and then uh, they came over and said hello to us for a while. And then uh, during that is when, when I got, I was shot by a sniper through my left arm and it came out my back next to my spine and then um, made it out of that barely. And then uh, I had found out later that it was actually an SF medic, a Green Bay medic that had put my chest tube in and basically provided me with the necessary means of living. And, um, and I really never knew if the story was true, but it's just what I heard because I wasn't awake or with it. And then um, – I got more more validity to the story as time went on and then um, skipping a little bit ahead though. But when I went to the Q course, the coolest part was I had this warrant was talking to us, telling us the story about a deployment. And I was like, man, that's a really funny kind of coincidence on this story here. So I went up and talked to him, which I wasn't supposed to because I was a student, but, and I started talking and I was telling him kind of what happened to me. He was like, Oh my God. He's like, I know you. And I was like, well, he's like, I don't know you, but I know you. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, my, my medic is the one who did that. He's like, he tells that story to everybody. And, um, he was actually teaching in Florida during, uh, doing like trauma rotations at the hospitals. And he's like, man, it's like one of his like stories that he teaches everybody is, um, because when I had been shot from what I remember was there was two doctors standing next to me and, uh, they were, debating on who was going to do the chest tube and all i can remember thinking is like there's no way this conversation is happening right now they were so new and they were like i haven't done one since medical school and this and that and it was a uh, this guy came in big beard scalpel and he, he i remember he looked right at me he was like this is gonna hurt real bad and he just plunged that thing right in my ribs and i think i screamed as loud as i could and, and then uh kind of that was that was kind of it from there that was my first, uh, my first real welcome to uh, to combat. Well, you just skated over the fact that you had a purple heart and a lot more heroism <laughs> to that story. So I'm going to get you to backtrack and revisit <laughs> it and and give a little bit more detail to what actually happened in that event. 
Well, Max will contest this. It's really hard for me. I'm going to do my best here, so bear with me. But uh, there's so many other guys that are far more heroes. I mean, you know, I I know you you hear the old-timers talk about, like, how, you know, they couldn't do what we're doing, and we say we couldn't do what they did. And it's it's all kind of just – it's all smoke and mirrors, man, because it's all the same, you know. I mean, I remember – walking across an open field, seeing guys doing a hundred yard dash with ammo cans, you know, that weigh 15 pounds or more, no gun, no supporting fire, just trying to get ammo to people, you know, and then single loading rounds at a time to try to get back in it. Cause we're all out of ammo. But, um, basically what had happened after we got compromised, um, we were basically screaming for help cause we were backed up to the Euphrates river and we couldn't really go anywhere. And uh, my team leader was like, oh, we're going to swim the river. And I was like, no, we're, we're not. We're That's bad. <laughs> and I think one guy was like, we can run to the hospital. And I was like, again, no, that, that's probably not going to work. So we ended up deciding to stick it out. And uh, But we were asking for support, and we were getting denied. They were like, there's, there's nobody to help you. Everybody's busy. And, you, I mean, you could hear it. You knew everybody was busy, and it was bad. And uh, finally – when it started, um, so we ended up getting compromised and called out by the lady, and it was right, right around 15 enemy came at us, and there was just four of us. And uh, we thought we were super cool before we left because we, we we got a basic load, combat load, when we went out, which you're allowed. But we stole, I think I stole a grenade, and my buddy stole like two 203 rounds, and I took a smoke. And, man, we thought we were the coolest <laughs> ever. And uh, – luckily we did though when we took it they started shooting at us but we didn't know at the time there was a skirmish uh, some friends of ours another platoon was getting into it right down the road and the lieutenant uh, bless this guy's heart he uh i think he did it against orders but he mounted up in a truck with about seven other guys and drove over to us to help us because we we wouldn't have made it uh there, there's just no way and uh we were getting beat up pretty bad I mean, they fired rockets at our faces, and it, I mean, my whole life flashed before my eyes. Literally, it was like, what am I doing here? Like, <laughs> who would have thought, you know? And then uh, we eventually, I remember the, the, you have to have funny moments in these things, you know? I remember my, my buddy Ferguson, he had the two, two or three rounds. I'm like, hey, Fergie, I was like, we need those rounds, man. Like, I got guys over here. He's like, I don't have them. I already shot them. Did you hit anything? Absolutely not. I was way <laughs> off. Like, dude, come on, man. You know, and, uh, and then finally, we actually, the truck rolled up, and it actually was pointing right at us. And so I threw the smoke over these pump houses to kind of let them know that we were over there. And they shifted fire and got them off of us, thankfully. We were, couldn't have been about 100 meters away from each other um, fighting. And it was kind of like an elevated road off the river from the uh, – the agricultural fields. And so we moved up to the uh, road. They dismounted and we were kind of pushing through and kind of trying to do like an L shape movement on them. And uh, it was bad. It was just people started falling left and right. And then um, you'd hear the machine gun going and stop. Then you hear it going and stop. Then there'd be like real long walls and you'd see guys running from tank to tank trying to get ammo. And, uh, you just, you knew it was all kinds of bad. And uh, I remember walking and I remember seeing a gun pointed through some bushes and I was like, 
there's a sniper, there's a sniper. And, and then I remember waking up on the ground, my face in the dirt. And, uh, I always tell it's like the movie Saving Private Ryan. If you ever seen it, when he gets mortared on the beach, Tom Hanks, yep. and he's looking around to his confused, can't hear anything. I mean, it was just like that. It was, uh, it was identical. And then, uh, I'd made the move, the bad move of watching the movie uh, Born on the Fourth with Tom Cruise not long before that. You know, he gets shot in his spine and he's, he's uh, paralyzed. And so when, my, when I felt the pain of my, the bullet, I was like, oh, no, I've been Tom Cruise. You know, I remember thinking this. I'm laying on the ground. And, uh, but one of my teammates came over, cut my vest off. He ran and uh, he kept fighting. And then uh, another one of the greatest guys ever, man, a, a corpsman ran through open field of fire with no gun, just first aid kit, ran over to me, laid down, and I was looking for open wounds, found the one on my back, put some uh, gauze on it and applied some pressure. And then um, we sat there for a while, hoping this thing would just end so we could get out of there. And uh, like I said, I remember looking to the left and I, friends are just pinned down behind tanks. It, I mean, it was awful. And then, um, all of a sudden you just hear like, whoom, whoom, boom, boom. And you're like, what is going on? And I knew what was going on. It's like, we're being mortared. This is great. I love this so much right now. <laughs> and then, and then you look up and, and all I see is he's got this one guy I can still picture his face. He's got his AK up and he's running at us, shooting as hard and as fast as he can. And th this guy couldn't have been more than 30 yards away, 40 yards away, maybe closer. And, um, and I remember thinking, I was like, this is it. Like, there's no way we're getting out of this one. And, uh, and I, I had a grenade still, so I grabbed it. And, um, and I told the corpsman, I was like, man, you just leave, dude. Like, there's no way I'm getting out of here. Like, and you can't get me out of here. And he basically was like, no, I'm sticking it out, man. I'm here with you. And uh, I was like, all right. And then, uh, I'm sorry, backtrack a little bit before that. <clears throat> I had propped my gun up on it, on the magazine, because I had one mag left. And with my, my good arm, my right arm, I just was shooting, trying to keep people away from us. And uh, and then eventually went, went out of ammo. I was completely... We had, we had nothing between us except for the grenade. And then, um, and then shortly after all you could hear was, all right, everybody keep your head down, they're, head down, they're coming in. And then you could hear just the helicopter whirling overhead. <clears throat> and, um, and finally it was a Huey came from Fallujah and he, the gunner started shooting the guy that was running at us turned and ran away. And, um, it finally eventually stopped. And, uh, I remember I got up, I left my, my weapon with the corpsman and then, uh, walked out. They had gotten the sniper and, um, but it was awful on the way out. It was, you know, a lot of my friends were on the ground. The, what I found out was the lulls in the machine gun was, um, that sniper had done a really good job though. He, he hit me, he grazed my teammate. Uh, another one of my friends got hit in the hand all by this guy. He killed two guys up on the machine gun turret, um, hit one through the throat and then one through the chest across the body. Um, and then I think somebody else had died as well. So there's only, you know, there's only like 10 of us and 
most of us were either shot or, or killed, but, um, could have been worse if that, that Lieutenant and those guys hadn't done what they did. And, um, find him walking out and, uh, got up to the road. The army agreed to come out and get us, but they didn't want anything to do with the skirmish. They, but they volunteered to come pick up the dead and wounded cause they had armor and we didn't for vehicles. And then, uh, that was when I got dro- driven off to uh, the combat outpost area and then uh, had the chest tube and everything. And the green bread came in and, and then uh, kind of went from there. And then uh, I was, t- I don't remember all of it. There was three, I remember th- I have three flashes in my head that I remember. And um, I remember one, I was in a tent, one, I was in a helicopter. And then uh, the other one, I was on a runway and um I remember there was like, I could see dust going up and there was, they were bombing the runway of some sort. But, um, so I can remember these three flashes and then a buddy of mine who had uh, traveled out with me was like, yeah, dude, you, you flatlined and stopped breathing like three times. And I, I don't know, but I always just figured those were the three either. Maybe those were before or after one of the two, but, um, but I know when my mom got the call, they, they didn't have a whole lot of hopes that I would, was going to pull out of that one. So just quickly walk me through, you know, from them pulling you from death to when you walked out of the hospital, what was that kind of mental and physical recovery process like for you? You know, that's kind of, that's a really good question. Cause I get into this debate a lot with people. Um, so I made my way back to Camp Pendleton and I did, you know, surgeries and everything else. And, um, this one little piece will kind of lead into later, but like there was a point I got, I went back in for a cleaning and, uh, in my back, they had packed it full of gauze cause it was just a massive open wound that thing had been left in there for so long. It was causing an infection and everything else. And, uh, so I had a lot of other things going against me than just the, the gunshot wound. But, um, I was in ICU for a few days. I got pushed out of ICU into like the general ward area because there were so many dead and wounded coming that the hospital was overworked and flooded. Then I got to the point where it was, you're good enough to go home. Does that mean you're good? No, you're just good enough to go home. Cause they were running out of room. They had nowhere to put these guys. And uh, so I got sent back to the barracks and uh, the, the real bad part about it was at the time, you know, the, what was the last time anybody knew what to do with people like us? So they just threw you in your room, made you go to formations. And, and I remember I had a guy beating on my door one day and he's like, you need to be in formation. I was like, I can't even breathe barely right now, let alone get up and walk to <laughs> formation, but they didn't care. You know, they didn't know what to do with us. They didn't care. And then um, before we knew it, we were, we were cutting grass, painting buildings, moving chairs, and uh, we had to prep the area for when everybody came back. And uh, back then, it was uh, it was basically, you know, go see the chaplain, go see a doctor. All right, here's a whole bunch of pills. Take these pills. You'll be fine. Go back to work. Um, it, it was very similar to, like, what you'd see in, like, Band of Brothers, where it was, like, after the after these skirmishes, they go to Australia, they get, like, two days off, and then it's like, all right, right back at it, you know no rest for the week. And, um, and it was just, it was right back at it. So we tried to have as best fun as we could. I mean, we're, we'd, we'd take guys in wheelchairs and like put paint rollers in their hands and push them down the <laughs> hall so they could paint or 
we'd take paint rollers to like some guys crutches so you could paint the paint the walls but uh you know as far as recovery there there was none you know it was I think we had one van or something. And if you were lucky to get in it, you could go to therapy, but there were so many of us. You just, uh, you just couldn't recovery for me was on my own. It was, um, as fast as I could, I started going back out and running and swimming and trying to get ready to go back. And, uh, I'd actually gotten to a point where I thought I was ready to go back, volunteered. They put me on a manifest to go back. And then I had to be honest with myself. I just couldn't do it. I would have, put more people at harm than anything. And so I had to kind of swallow my pride and stay back and keep recovering. And then, uh, the deployment just, you know, everybody will say their deployment was bad and it, it was bad just a lot of reasons. But, um, after that we, we had just lost so many people and so many people were hurt. Um, it was almost hard to comprehend how it was that bad, you know, especially when you're sitting there like we have one of the best militaries in the world and all this stuff. It's like, th this should never have happened. So he got to the point where, uh, I just, I did my term, my term and then I, I got out and was like, I appreciate it, but I'm going home. And, uh, I, I didn't really want to, to be honest. Uh, but my, like I said, my grandparents were all kind of passing away at the time and my folks were struggling with that. And then this happened and uh, my mother was basically like, you know, if you could get out for at least a year and give that kind of break to me and your father, uh, we would appreciate it. And I was, what am I going to do? Say no to that. You know, so I respected her wishes. I got out. And then uh, it was almost about a year to the day that I went back to my mom. and was like, can't do this anymore. Um, I mean, I was doing construction with my father. I was making great money, uh, had a place to live, truck you know, everything somebody could want and just wasn't enough. And so I just started looking for a branch service to go back into after that. Did they ask you what internship you took to get into the construction field? You told them, well, in the Marines, if you get wounded, then they put you through a whole trade school after that. Pretty, pretty, pretty <laughs> much, you know. I, well, anybody who knows anything, if you're, if you're in the infantry, uh, it, I think it's, it's, it's borderline a janitorial job too. <laughs> the fire service is the same so you didn't miss out yeah. on joining that right <laughs> all right well i want to go to max for a second and then come back and we'll kind of walk through green berets and then obviously you know the the root of this conversation max when i have people that were deployed um a question that i put to them that i preface with this if you're a civilian, especially in America, you get a very polarized view on war, either the kind of kill them all, let God sort them out, stack the bodies group, or the they're all a bunch of baby killers, more of the hippie, probably more of the San Jose <laughs> original thing. But there's no, I don't see much conversation of the real men and women that were out there, you know, the, the, the good, the bad and the ugly of the war that they're seeing. Um, you know, I usually ask, you know, was there a time where you witnessed atrocities or, or something that regardless of the politics, you realize there were some bad people that need to be taken out and then conversely with their times of kindness and compassion? I think Richard's story just kind of covered both of those in one go. With you being a journalist, what is your perspective of the polarization of the way war is reported to the average person? And how were you able to nav navigate that yourself as a journalist? 
Wow, you're going deep, dude. Um, <laughs> Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. <laughs> so it's funny. I while Richard was talking about his, his time in Fallujah, um, I, I I pulled up a, a piece that I wrote from my my first time there, and there's a couple things I want to say. One is I'm not a war reporter, right? So I've I've been to Iraq twice, once in 05, uh, late 04, maybe, maybe 05. And then I went back uh, around 16, I think, to Mosul. Um, and your question's like, so so there's that like i I i've been there twice if you added it up all my time there it it might have been a month and a half which is nothing it's a blink of an eye um there are there are war correspondents who are there and that's all they do all day every day that's not me which which may help actually to answer your question because i i was there relatively briefly and the first time i went um, was because of and with this guy, McMenamin. And let's just say that we don't agree on a lot when it comes to politics. Um, I love this guy. He's he's my brother. But we rarely agree on anything having to do with politics. And we certainly did not agree on the Iraq war. And I expressed to him that I thought at the time, this was in real time, that it was, you know, basic. this is my two cents, that it was all all bullshit, um, and ultimately, you know, what the U.S. did was claim, you know, a, a WMD whoops-a-daisy. Like, well, we thought they had them, but turns out, you know, not so much. And essentially, Tim said, uh, Tim McMenamin said to me, typical journalist, you're always shooting off your mouth. You've never been here. You don't know what you're talking about. If you ever want to, you know, like really inform yourself. I'll have uh, a helmet and a cot waiting for you. That was a quote. That's what he said. So essentially, my buddy was calling my bluff, right? So basically, that's why I went and and I arranged to go. And uh, just to be clear, if it's not clear enough, I, I was not for this war. And, and in my mind, for better or for worse, I believed that I was going to try and find a way to report essentially on behalf of my friend, Tim, and people like Richard, who I didn't even know existed yet, who were so willing to lay down their life for the country, follow orders. And I felt like that the orders that they were being given, not by their commanding officers, but by the politicians in DC, um, were a disservice to them. And that's the perspective that I went there with. And uh, when I first arrived, um, I this was in 04, 05. I don't remember exactly when. It was 05. I'm pretty sure it was 05. Haditha had just happened when I got there. And I flew in and I was in, uh, I did a couple days in the green zone. And I was basically waiting for you know, a milk run bus plane to take me out to Al Anbar. And literally the like second night I was there, I was where they were forming the new Iraqi parliamentary government. I was in a cot in the hallway outside where the parliament was meeting. And uh, 
uh, a car, a car bomb came to the front gate and, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it was, it was a wake up call for me. Right. I, I, I've been reporting, you know, heavily reported stories in the States and profiling people like Josh Brolin. And here I am in fucking Baghdad. Right. And I, in Iraq and, you know, I'm sleeping on a cot outside the parliamentary and a car bomb has just come in. I was like, Oh, this shit's for real. You know? Um, so I finally caught a, a, a flight out and my, my buddy at the time was um, he was in, in a, a, a little town not far from Ramadi. And I, I remember this vividly. We were, um, we're in the helicopter. We're flying across. This shows you what like a complete dork, idiot, clueless guy I was. I'm in the helicopter. I'm the last one on the, my stop on this bus is the last stop on the bus ride. It was way out there. And uh, I'm looking at the gunners on either side. And they're just like having a cool, like they're just sitting there. And I'm thinking, wow, this is kind of beautiful. This is what's in my head. Like, wow, this is kind of beautiful. I'm looking down. I'm having thoughts of like Lawrence Arabia, like what a beautiful country this is. Like, oh, this is the birthplace of civilization. Down there's the Tigris and the Euphrates. And all of a sudden, these guys, the, the guns just, they, they, it's like they became different people. Like it was clear shit was afoot, right? Something was going on. And I see these, uh, like Richard. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is is the bad guys have red or the the bad guys have green when they're shooting? If it's anti aircraft, uh, I think it's red. What, let's go with red. Whatever it was, I'll stipulate that this could be incorrect. The coloring, but these streaks start coming by the the chopper, and I'm thinking, why aren't these guys shooting back? What is happening here? Like this seems bad. And uh, we land and um, it was in the middle of the night and my buddy Tim had been waiting for me. He left his main base in Al-Anbar and he came to this little forward operating base to meet me. And uh, he comes up and the first thing he says to me is, hey, are you OK? And I said, like, yeah, because I wasn't really sure what happened. And I said, dude, I think I think we were getting shot at. And he said, he said, yeah, you were. And I said, well, riddle me this. Why didn't we shoot back? And he said, um, there, there must have been some sort of military protocol where they where they they couldn't fire back. I share that just by that was like my first like 48 hours. Right. So I think your question was you know, talk about the polarization. And so my friend Tim and I couldn't have been more polarized on the politics. But to oversimplify a, a fair amount of time there in my my little bit of time there, I ended up going from Al Anbar. Uh, and when Richard said, it's funny, when, when I heard Richard say th- that at a certain point early in, in, in that, uh, I guess we'd call it OIF-1, um, there was a mentality that changed from we were we were fighting a war to we were doing, you know, hearts and minds is the phrase that he used. And that's a civil affairs group task for the most part. And I was with the fifth CAG. I was with the civil affairs group. And that was their job in theory to win over the hearts and minds. And that was the thesis of my story. Like, let's see 
if these guys can actually do what this task is that they're now supposed to be tasked with. And remember, this is 0405, right? That was just the beginning, right? We didn't know it at the time, but we barely, that was just getting rolling. And so I end up, um, after a lot of like, basically chickening out, like going outside the wire. It was when Richard says it was bad there, like we were there right about the same time under very different circumstances, but like I was scared shitless and Al Anbar is like a city, you know, it had its own McDonald's and car dealerships. It was ridiculous. It was run by like contractors. Like you could be there and you couldn't even, it didn't even feel like you were in a war zone, right? You go outside that wire. It's a different story. Then, then you're on your own, dude. And they, at the time, they had all these, the routes to these different outlying four operating bases. I think they had colored names. And I believe the one that we traveled was Root Bronze. And it was finally after like, I had chickened out a one, maybe two. And then there was a third that it was like, I figured this is my last. And I was like, I, I'm here. I have to like experience what they're experiencing. And real war correspondence. They do this all day, every day. Again, to emphasize, that's not how I rolled. That's not how I was wired. I didn't really know what I was getting into. And so I decide I'm going to ride with some uh, civil affairs guys down to a forward operating base that they had just set up. It was called HEAT, but it's spelled HIT. And they had only recently secured it. And I'm, I'm getting to this point about... <laughs> You know, we were trying to get the U.S. was trying to get basically democracy up and rolling. And a large part of that began was was with civil affairs guys trying to get the imams to convince their people to participate in the democratic elections. And we go down, we ride through the ride through the desert on root bronze. We get the heat. The, the, the civil affairs group had taken over a schoolhouse and. Um, what I was told, and it turns out it was, what, what had happened is not long before I got there, um, I believe uh, something close to this, if not exactly this happened, a Marine had gone up, uh, he, had, he had gone to a place to shave, and it was one of the few places where there was water running, and um, he had been shot, and they were sharing this anecdote with me basically to get me to mind my P's and Q's and like to, to respect where I was like to try and convey to me. So the, the guy who was running this civil affairs group, I don't, I don't know if I should use names here, so I won't, but um, he, he was a graduate of the Naval Academy. He, this wasn't his first like rodeo in the shit. Um, and he took his job very seriously. He, he believed in the mission. And sitting and talking with him completely gave me a whole new perspective on the politics right now just doesn't fucking matter. This guy is here and, you know, we throw the word hero around. I, I've called Richard one. He, he understandably doesn't love it. But if you just listen to the way he talks about what he's been through, it's remarkable, right? Like, it's remarkable. 
But all of these guys, all of his fellow Marines, that's how they were wired. That's how they're wired, right? Like, this is what we do. So this guy just made this incredibly articulate, informed, um, geopolitical, historical rooted case for why it was good for us to be there. And I didn't agree with him, but I didn't disagree with him. And so the next day we had to wake up and this was the moment. He was meeting with a bunch of moms from the local community and his goal was to try and get them to, to get their followers to vote. And I remember this like it was yesterday. Like we we met in this little conference room and it's like a scene from a movie, like Richard said, like th this, this schoolhouse had been bombed to shit. Like it was, you were in the middle of nowhere and this was the tip of the spear. This was a forward, forward operating base. And they bring in these imams and they sit around a conference table. There might've been five of them. And there was one old guy, like the old imam. He was clearly the, the grand poobah of the group. And there was a, maybe six to eight Marines. The, 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 the captain of the civil affairs group, the guy that I'm referring to, he ran the meeting. And he basically said, before we begin, is there anything you'd like to tell me? And what had happened was what happened was the there was a young uh, I don't know if he was in a mom, but he was sort of like the right hand man of the of the old guy. And the old guy looked like it was maybe a hundred, you know, beard. This guy was sent from central casting to play the old mom. <laughs> and the younger guy is like saying a bunch of stuff. Obviously, I don't understand what he's saying, but there was a translator there and he's saying all this stuff and he's getting pissed. And you could feel the temperature in the room escalate. Like I, I could see like that, like the Marines were getting like antsy, you know, you could just see them changing their finger placements and the way they were eyeballing the room. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on right now? And essentially what the, the, the moms end up communicating to the captain is that two members from their community had been basically shredded up like, they had been gunned down approaching a checkpoint for no good reason. And they're screaming and it's escalating. And what the captain who was prepared for this question uh, said was he tried to very uh, patiently in detail, walk them through that these two guys that were shot were not boy scouts that they had been approaching the, the checkpoint. They had been warned multiple times not to proceed. And they, and they uh, disregarded all the warnings. And so the Marines had no choice, but to open fire. And that's what happened. And it did not go well, right? This was not what these imams wanted to hear. The young guy in particular was not listening to any of this. He was not buying any of it. So the captain tried to de-escalate it, and then he tried to have a hearts and minds diplomatic conversation and convince them why it was in their best interest to participate in this democracy. They left. Shortly thereafter, uh, the base came under attack. I mean, I, I don't remember the exact amount of time, but what I will never forget 
is uh, that civil affairs group circled me. They circled me guns out. And, um, you know, they weren't, they weren't thinking of themselves and they didn't want a fucking journalist around, you know, I was, I was a nuisance. Even if I was Timmy's friend, you know, I got, I got a little more patient, tolerant treatment because of that, but I was a nuisance and they were ready to, it didn't matter who I was. I was an American. I was in their care. And they were ready to lay down their lives for me. That dramatically altered. Uh, I mean, I always had respect for the military, but this is a very long winded answer to your question of no matter what my perspective is on politics, no matter what my perspective is on whether the, the mission is a good one or not. When I'm reporting a story that has to do with the military, my first and foremost concern is the men and women of the military. And I, I think that the, the stories I've worked on, that, that's why I've been pulled to them. And that's why I was pulled to this one. Beautiful. Well, that's a phenomenal answer to my question. So thank you so much. And this is what what I love is whether it's the people that are out there and I want to switch to Richard in a second or, you know, people that have unusual perspectives. Sebastian Jung has been on here a couple of times. He was embedded, you know, in Restrepo and some of the other places. And that's a war reporter. That's yeah. a war reporter. But I mean, that, and so are you, but in a different context, as you kind of, you know, made sure we understood it's still a unique view and you were physically there. You spent a month and a half longer in Iraq than I have, for example. So um, in my only exp exposure really to the military is the Salvation Army giving them money at Christmas time. So uh, <laughs> well, speaking of the army, Richard, is there anything you want to add to that whole, you know, kind of uh, perspective that Max just gave us before we progress through your special forces career? Yeah. Um... <sighs> I, I actually really appreciate the way Max says that because, uh, like one one good example, I think, you know, when uh, we did the withdrawal out of Afghanistan and uh, and and those men and women were killed, you know, I had a, a few reporters reach out and and some politicians, and they were like, "Oh, you must be so angry," and this and that, and um, you know, I I had to think about it for a minute, and I was like. I'm sad that they passed away and I didn't know, them, but I'm sad. But I ended up telling one of the politicians, I go, we didn't do this though. Those guys and girls didn't do this. And so I draw a fine line of a weird way of looking at it where it's like, I'm not going to get mad and, and get to the point where I, they knew, we all know what we're doing. Nobody's forced to join. And like, I had a buddy who kind of, jumping on a story here who they, they were in a bad situation. He, he ultimately sacrificed himself to get everybody out of it. And I was like, you know what? I'm so sad that this guy died. He had four girls, a wife. And, uh, but I won't take away the fact that they knew what they were doing. They, they weren't tricked and bamboozled. They knew what they were doing. And most of these guys and girls, they believe in their hearts that they are there for somebody to make their lives better. 
and they're willing to sacrifice what they ever had to do that. And so I don't, I don't want to get, it's all about perspective for me where it's, you know, the, those, my friends, they knew what they were doing. They knew the risks. They knew that they were helping people though. Could they, could we say that about people over us, you know, in the bigger grand scheme of it? I don't know. I'm not, not here to speak on that, but as far as our actions go, most of everybody in the military is there for a good reason because it's volunteer service. You didn't, most people are, again, not speaking for everybody, you know, I'm just here to kill everybody in the world. Like, I'm, there's always a weirdo there somewhere, you know. But I won't take away what they knew they were doing, you know, the, the sacrifices that they gave and, and everything else. But, you know, we're not making those calls. You know, we're just there to do what we feel is right in our hearts. But, um, and that's one thing I, I, I hope people find a way to look past the military in, in, in ways it's like don't judge us based off of congressional actions or decisions we are not congression we're not i mean we're not congress and, and they are not us and, and it's too you know do our orders come from there yeah but i don't get those orders directly you know but i'm doing what i'm told and everybody would you if you were a son or a daughter you would do what you're told by your parents or if you were in a job any job, you know, if you work for Coca-Cola, they tell you what to do, you do it. And that's, that's all we're doing. And are they easy decisions? No, not always, you know, but you try to do the best that you can. And, and a lot of times doing the best that you can usually ends up sacrificing yourself or your friends because it involves the best decision to help others that you don't even know. Um, but, uh, so it's very, it's a very perspective thing. And then, uh, one of my training points in my life was I had a sergeant major, you know, kind of like the whole where, uh, you know, Hey, we didn't do this. You guys did it. You know, we didn't, we didn't, we weren't in charge of the withdrawal like that, you know, but I had a sergeant major one time because the perspective and the mindset of a lot of military is, you know, I want to get into a gunfight because that's, that's a proof of worth, you know, or value. And it's like, is it, is it really, we think it is, but I had a sergeant major who, Change, flip my whole world upside down because if you have a CIB, a combat infantry badge, and you walk around in uniform, you're respected. You know, you, you've, you've been there. You've done it. And, uh, and he, he sat us down one day, and he was like, you know, I'd give every single one of you one of those that never, ever got into a gunfight, never, ever fired a single round. And he's like, aren't we supposed to be so good that we can do this without ever getting into fights? And he was like, that's where you should strive for, you know, the, the whole gun thing, that's just a means of protection against those ones that really don't like you. And, um, and I was just like, wow, that's, that's a really unique way of looking at it. And I've really tried to like strive to fulfill that through the rest of my career was it doesn't need to get that bad, but if it does, we're ready, but let's change the perspective on things. And it's, you know, the way you look at military, right? You, I mean, both of you across the country or anybody, it's like, oh, the poor military, man, they're so messed up and they got PTSD and all this. Like, stop talking about it. Why do you have to put us down like that? Like, like, yeah, it's bad. But then we get the help we need. But like, why has it got to be so negative all the time? You know, and it's just like, judge us on who we are and the actions that we do not not just the actions of others and decisions of others you know 
I don't don't hammer me because somebody up in DC says something I didn't say it. You know. Yeah, I think I think what 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 I react to when I hear Richard talk, and the more I hear him talk, um, is my two cents when you're reporting a story that has to do with the military. What I have in my mind is they're there for us, and as journalists, we should be there for them. And you know, it's funny. R- R- Richard and I had some you know back and forth on certain issues when we were talking in in North Carolina, and this might be a good moment to to talk about for for your listeners if if they care. You know what's perceived. There's bad journalists, just like there's bad everything. Um, but but in my experience over my career, I've I believe this with my whole heart that when there's a piece that's perceived from perhaps inside the rank and file of the military as negative or unflattering, um, you know, why? As Richard just said, why does it have to be so negative? They can't challenge their command. They can't challenge Congress. We can't. That's pretty much why we exist. And so if it comes off as negative or from some perspectives, uh, and I'll just leave it at that, that it's unpatriotic or it's detrimental to to the standing order of, of the military, okay, that's your perspective. But maybe having journalists cover the military and and do those stories if you stop and think about it in a larger context is i think most of the journalists are there because they care about the men and women of our military and sometimes the way that we cover stories you know might you might not love it if you're a member of the military but we're not we're not there to throw throw stones for no good reason. Um, you know, I think this story is 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 a perfect example. Um, I'm not saying talking about the execution uh, of the story or anything like that. I just mean, you know, these are these are active service members that deserve better, and the, very few of them, uh, for whatever reasons can and will or have the ability to speak out even respectfully as Richard has done and others. Um, but that's why we exist. So I, I think. Well, just to, to kind of add on to that, that's why I'm doing this full time now as a firefighter within the ranks. I started this and for two years I was still wearing the uniform, but I realized I was just one email away from being told you can't do that when you're, you know, working for us. And so for me, the only way to advocate for the men and women in uniform that I love was to not be in uniform myself, but still care, you know. So then technically, if you wanted to label what I do now, it's it's journalism, which is bizarre because I'm a firefighter. But that's the, you know, the term now for what we're doing here. So you're just putting out di- you're just trying to put out different kind of fires, James. That's exactly. Right. Exactly. And it's the same mission still. You're still trying to make the world better. You're still trying to you know, save lives or improve lives, but it's through these conversations, you know, as opposed to it's, it's proactive versus reactive. You call 911 and me and my crew show up and we mitigate whatever disaster you've got going on in your life. 
Um, so I think it's 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 important, and you do have the sensationalism of what we see on the mainstream media with the screen split into four and four assholes arguing with each other, and it's not news <laughs> at all, left and right. And then you have yourself, you know, the Sebastian Jungers, the people out there that truly care, that are putting out great pieces of you know of journalism and making incredible documentaries that are actually representing the boys and girls and men and women of the nations that they serve under and the incredible work that they're doing here and overseas. Well, that's interesting, James, that you, you, uh, you say that though, cause that's the balancing act I'm in right now is still being active duty, but still trying to do this at the same time. And what I found that I really actually enjoy is I'm trying to my best to find the common ground between the two, because I'm not here to talk bad about any one side or the other. You know, and then respectfully, like I get, you know, my command gets nervous and I'm like, look, this isn't about you. It's not about what you think it is or what you are afraid of. So it's, it's been very interesting, but I'm, it's, I think you definitely understand that it's a tightrope sometimes, you know, on one wrong word or one thing. And I have to think about every word that I say, it's like, Oh, did I just cross the line? You know? And, uh, and why I don't, cause I could get out, I could retire very easily. But I feel like that would change the dynamic of this because I feel like if I can bridge the gap between being active duty and still advocating for this, it should shed the light on a whole lot of other things, you know, like whether just politics of if you're left or right or how you lean towards one thing or another, because it's like you can see the common good on both sides and you can see the bad on both sides, but it can still all be done, you know. So I find that interesting that you, you went through the same thing. Absolutely. Well, well, speaking of that then, so let's kind of go down that path. You were wounded, you know, in combat. You didn't have the best rehab story I've ever heard. Um, we haven't even touched on the mental side, but I'm assuming it was probably paramount to having to paint walls in hallways. Um, but that's still kind of under the umbrella of wounded in combat, kind of different box. So walk me through your re-entry to the military with the Army, Special Forces, and then if you wouldn't mind, kind of walk us through, you know, your initial medical after, you know, issues with breathing, and then let's kind of, you know, explore this topic now. Yeah. So it was, it was uh, <clears throat> like I said, about a year after I got out, um, I was just ready to go back and do what I loved to do what I felt like I wanted to do. And, um, with, with the deployment had ending so bad, I, I just felt so empty and unfinished business and not even business. Like I know the, the comment is like, Oh, there's so many more people I need to go kill. And this is like, I had nothing to do with that. It was, it was actually, it was unfinished and I didn't know what it meant yet. Um, until very, very much later. But, um, so anyways, it took me about six months. I joined and I was actually, my sister was joining the army and I went and I was going to go help her talk to the recruiter. And then, uh, man, I just really caught the bug again on what I was going to do. And then a lot of the stories had come back cause I'd forgotten about it. And I was like, you know, what are these green beret things? You know, I don't know anything about this. And then the guy was like, Oh, it's the toughest. That's the hardest. And this and that I was like, that's perfect. That's where I need to be. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, all right, let's do it. And, uh, and so I signed up and, um, I was, I remember it must have all just been the way it's supposed to be. But when I was leaving, uh, I came across a green beret. I was like, Hey man, you know, I just got married. My wife's pregnant. 
I want to be a Green Beret, like any words of advice. And I remember this guy looked up at me and he's like, good luck. And I was like, <laughs> oh man, I don't know what this means, but all right, well, maybe I'm better than him. So whatever. So I keep going and uh, ended up just joining, went to the 101st, uh, went to selection and passed. And uh, I still had no idea what a Green Beret was. I like, I, I was so ignorant to it all. Like one of my good buddies at the time when I was in the Marine Corps, he was like, yeah, I think I'm going to try out for recon. And I was like, yeah, you're going to go out for forest recon. And he's like, what did you say? I was like, yeah, forest recon. He's like, you mean forest recon? <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> I know these things that I didn't grow up in the military, but uh, <laughs> I remember getting selected and, um, and they were playing the ballad of the green beret and like guys are like crying, you know, it's like won the super bowl. In mid-song, I'm like nudging this guy. I'm like, why is everybody crying? He's like, bro, it's the Battle of the Green Beret. And I was like, all right, I don't know what that means, dude. Like, whatever. <laughs> when do we start training? That's all I need. <laughs> and uh, so we went through it from there. And uh, it was every bit of hard, like they said it was going to be. Uh, you know, I nothing's impossible, in my opinion. The day has to end at some point. But it was not fun. Let me tell you that much. But well worth it in the end. And then um, got my first assignment, did some uh, deployments all over there and some. And then uh, um, out of respect for my my command and everything else, you know, I don't go, I'm not going to go deep into things about work too much. But um, I had a really good career. Good, I was successful. Um, did just about everything I wanted to do. I worked with a lot of great guys, some of the – Man, some of the best you'd ever seen and could imagine. He, and, uh, he was he was deployed. He was deployed to to situations and and combat and 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 hostilities that he can't talk about. And uh, suffice it to say, ribbons, badges, and medals. There were more. And his first firefight wasn't his last. And um, I'll say it because I think it's worth saying, and it's important to be noted. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, Max knows me long enough now that those are those are hard subjects for me. But um, but I, I, I kept going, and then uh, I found myself in, in Fort Bragg. I was teaching at a school um, for for Green Berets and, and other services, and then um, I decided I wanted to be a warrant officer. And so I was getting ready to do that, and um, I got my new assignment and everything, and life was going good, and. I uh, decided I wanted to go to dive school so I could be a warrant officer on a dive team. And uh, so I started training up for that and then um, got ready for that in 2017. Uh, passed all the prerequisites about January and then left around March to, to go to dive school. Um, that was kind of, uh, let's see, the fast version of my career right there. So when you're in dive school, you know, what, what alarmed you and then kind of walk me through the, the initial assessment. So when I was in dive school, there was, there wasn't anything alarming. It was just, well, first, well, first you had to get scanned. You had to get approved. Right. Right. So back in January, uh, because I'd been shot in the lungs in, in the Marine Corps, I had to get a scan, uh, I see a chest scan on my um, lungs to make sure I could withstand the school. So, um, when I was done with the scan, I mean, I walked in plain clothes, normal person, appointment, um, had nothing to do with anything else. 
and uh, they're like, all right, we'll, we'll let you know if there's anything. And I never heard anything. So, um, so everything as far as I knew was good. And then uh, I went down to dive school and I just passed all the prereqs. So I knew I was confident. I was fine. There was no reason I should fail. And then um, I got down there and it was just, it was just hard. I, I couldn't explain it. There was no like alarming flags or bells or whistles going off. It was just like, nothing's working right. Like, I don't know why, you know, I normally run this fast and now I can't even make it in the slow group. And then, uh, so we're doing, doing some testing and just ended up failing. And, you know, instructors are giving me a hard time thinking I'm sandbagging it and don't want to do the work or whatever. And, you know, it was just kind of like, man, like I've never been questioned on my, my moral or ethical capabilities in my career ever. And all of a sudden this, and so I went home and, I was just baffled, you know, and everybody's confused. Like, doesn't, doesn't make sense why I'm fail, I failed. And and uh, then shortly after, I remember, like, I started wheezing a little bit. And it was allergy season, so it was kind of expected with me, you know. And then um, I remember I had a ch- uh, pain on my around my sternum on the right side, you know. I remember I'd be laying in bed like, ah, oh, it's weird. Like, I mean, bad allergies or something going on. And then, uh, then it would slowly progress to the point where it was like, I'd have to, oh, the the one part was, uh, it got to the point where I felt like I was being waterboarded. It was weird. Like, I, I'd wake up, like, gasping for air, like I was drowning. Like, um, say waterboarded just because everybody can picture that. But it was like, I, I I felt like water was being poured down my throat and I and I couldn't breathe. So then I was elevating my upper body. And I was like, oh, this is weird because the last time I did that was when I was shot in the lungs and I had trouble breathing. And uh, so I'm like, oh, you know, nothing, this isn't normal, but this isn't, but there was just nothing to really say, hey, you know. And so that went on for a while. And then finally, I um, I was at work one day and we had just gotten done out in the woods training and, and I was standing there, I was talking to the guys and uh, for the first time in my career, in my life, I was like, I do not feel well at all. Like, I don't know not even not unwell like you have the flu just unwell like i couldn't think straight my head was off i felt dizzy and i was like yeah i'm gonna go to the hospital or something and uh, they're like all right and um there, there's always a stigma with the hospitals and everything in the, the military and i was like well i don't want to go to the hospital so i went to uh where the students to become green berets go over there because i know that there's 18 deltas there that are medics and stuff and where there's former medics that are now physicians and stuff and i trust them and uh so i went over there talking to the guy for a while i did an ekg and then uh you know we're talking and he's like you know you really don't look all right he's like you should probably go to the hospital i was like i know i was like i don't really want to but i know i know you're right and, uh, so then we got into a debate about, do I drive myself? Cause it was just down the road or do I, does he call an ambulance? And ultimately he's like, I'm gonna call you an ambulance because you'll, you'll be seen faster. You know, I was like, all right. So I take an ambulance ride. I get out on the gurney and, uh, even the paramedics are, you know, they're like, yeah, you look fine. It's kind of confusing, but whatever. They wheel me through the ER and the, the guy in there, I remember he's just like, all right, put him in the waiting room. And I was like, Wait a minute, I came in on a gurney. Like, I don't know why I'm going to the waiting room here. Went to the waiting room, and it was every bit of three, four hours go by. You know, wife shows up from how far we lived, 
workday ends, my boss comes over, my wife keeps going up and it's like, why isn't he being seen? Came with breathing problems. That's, you know, normally you get jumped to the front and, and, uh, and I'm not one to jump in front of anybody, but this was like, this ain't right, you know? And finally, even the, the one funny part was even the paramedics left to do a call. They came back and they were like, you are still sitting here. And I was like, I absolutely am. And uh, so finally, after a few hours, I get called back. The triage nurse, all right, what's going on? I tell her and she's like, well, you're, you're, you're only like 35, so you should be fine. You, you really probably don't even have anything. Just give me a hard time. I'm like, all right, apparently you're the doctor. You know, I don't need to go back there anymore. Thank you. And, uh, and so I go back and do some breathing treatments, so, you know, the normal workup. I did an x-ray. And then, uh, you know, doctor, you know, looking back on it, doctor being kind of weird about things. And then uh, towards the end of it, he's like, you know, we're going we're to schedule you for a pulmonology follow-up. He's like, uh, read your scans. He's like, I think we see some, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, we're going to send you pulmonology. They'll, they'll let you know. We'll figure it out. You know, like, okay. I don't, no idea. And then uh, so I pretty much leave. And uh, I think I was to this point, I maybe had like a speck of blood or something come out. Nothing alarming because I was coughing pretty hard. But while I'm waiting on pulmonology, like I start bleeding profusely, like my throat is just getting bad. And I mean, I am nonstop just coughing blood um, to every bit of alarming degrees. And then, uh, but a week later after that visit, I'm still waiting to be seen. I'm at work, I'm telling them what's going on, my command and everything. And then, uh, you know, and I'm like, oh, I'm trying to be, you know, upbeat. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna be fine. I'll make it through it. Don't worry. And then uh, I think I almost fell over and I grabbed the safe and like leaned on it. And they were like, all right, you're going to the hospital. I was like, was like I'm, I'm not going to the hospital. I, I'm still waiting. They're, they just, they're, they're not going to do anything. They've already told me. Cause I asked, I was like, what if I keep going back? And he's like, you know, we'll just keep putting you in the ER and you wait for pulmonology. Like, okay. So my commander's like, all right, he got a guy threw me in my car. He drove me about 45 minutes back home to where I live to the hospital there. And then uh, by the time I get there, I'm basically passed out in the car, hunched over. They open the door. I pretty much fall out. And the nurse comes out, wheelchair. They pick me up, wheel me in. And then uh, I, I, was, I was trying to snack on like M&Ms or something, thinking I was low on sugar or something. And then uh, apparently I just passed out, just stopped breathing and went to sleep. And then uh, I woke up in the back. They did like a sternum rub and I, you know, anybody will wake up from that thing. Ran some more tests on me and everything else. And, uh, you know, they didn't have access to any of my stuff, my records and all that. And uh, told them I had an appointment. And they're like, that's the best thing you got. That's all we would do. And so I left and I was on the right track. And then, um, like I said, it just got worse. I was just bleeding more and more. Couldn't, you know, or bleeding, couldn't breathe, pain everything you could think of. And then, um, I finally, so like that was a week from hospital, to hospital. And it could have been about a week later, you know, I, um, my war officer's like, Hey, what's going on? I'll tell him. And he's like, are you, if you schedule an appointment, I'm like, no, I didn't schedule an appointment. I've heard from nobody. So he, he starts calling. And then, uh, the following week, he's like, call this number. 
specialty referral. They're the ones that handled the referral from the physician to authorize it so you can go to see another physician. And so I'm calling them and it's like, yeah, it's almost done, this and that. And almost two weeks go by. Finally, I, I either I called pulmonology or they called me and we scheduled an appointment. Nice lady, you know, and it's like, I was like, oh, yeah, great. When can I get in there? She's like, oh, well, new patients aren't a priority. Existing patients are. Great. What's that mean? Uh, soonest we have is 30 days. I'm like, oh, well, this isn't good. You know, like I'm explaining to her and she's like, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do. We're, we're busy. There's too many people, not enough staff and this and that. Like, uh, so she put me on like a waiting list and, and then uh, it was like about two weeks go by, but in between these two weeks, it was so bad. I mean, I was calling uh, TRICARE. I was begging. I mean, I was like, I think one lady I, I about cried on the phone with was like, I just need somebody to help me. Like, I'm so desperate and bad. As, like, even to the point where I was like, not trying to be glorious, but I'm like, I'm a Green Beret lady. Like, I've been a Marine. I've been shot. Like, I am begging you right now. This is how bad I am. And I need somebody to please help me. And uh, I was even trying to just get a referral code so I could go to like a urgent care and just have anybody give me the time of day. I couldn't get anything, absolutely nothing. And uh, so I'm waiting on this appointment for 30 days. And I think it was about two weeks go by. And I, I mean, I'm out of option. I'm trying everything. And uh, so I'm out about a month now for the first hospital trip or so. So again, my commander's like, what's going on? And I tell him, he's like, oh, that's it. I'm done with this shit. You know, you're, you're, passing out at work you bleed like all this throws his uniform on drives to the base uh, hospital comes back and he's like all right uh physician at pulmonology agrees to let you go off post says you 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 probably be better off doing that and great this is great news but he has to write the referral that's got to go to tricare especially referral then you get to get appointment okay all right great this should be quick though because they know now i think it still took a total, uh, I think I got a call about five days later. They messed up, their doc messed up the referral, had to go back, had to be rewritten again. And then um, finally gets done. And about this time, my appointment would have came up on base uh, pretty darn close. But I knew I was better going off base. And uh, off post calls me. I scheduled an appointment and they were like, I think it was something, it was like three, four days out. Something silly. It was, long enough that they couldn't schedule me any faster until I had them all my previous medical records to them so they could review them. I sent it, I got it to them with within a day or so, cause you got to go request those. Um, like when I joined, you could, you could hand carry your own bed records. Now you, it's like, they treat you like a criminal. If you touch them, um, you have to request them. So I had to go request them. I had to request scan discs and all this, took it to them. They called me said, Hey, we need one more. Went and got it. Only a couple of days go by. I'm still happy. I'm still happy with their speed. And then um, they were pretty urgent about it. And I, I don't know if it had anything to do with what they had seen, but I, I got in there, did a breathing test, talked to the doctor. Doctor was great. And then um, he gets to the point at the end, it's like last question. And he's like, have you been bleeding? And I was like, as a, as a matter of fact, yeah, like a lot. And he's like, you need to go downstairs right now and do a, do a, I think it was x-ray or CT, x-ray, I think. And uh, I'll call you. Sure, do that. Uh, called me, I think, two days a day. And he's like, hey, you know, there's there's something 
pretty alarming. You need to come in and have a biopsy done. This is like a Wednesday or something. And I remember he's like, I'd have you in here on Friday if I could, but I have my rotations just it won't allow me to. He's like, but Monday. Okay. So I go in Monday and uh, I knew I was pretty nervous because it's like, you don't tell somebody you need a biopsy unless, you know, the doctor doesn't call you at home. And, uh, and uh, I was talking to my mom about it. You know, she's trying to be uplifting and everything. And I was like, all right, well, go in. And then um, and I think in my heart, like I knew something, it wasn't going to be good news. You know, you don't just bleed profusely for no reason out of your throat. And uh, I woke up and I think my wife was crying. And uh, they were like, oh, you have uh, stage 3A lung cancer. And uh, I actually just forgot about this one until it's now. But I remember, you know, everybody's like, it was like morbid in there. It was like, I was like, man, I thought I'd die or something. But uh, but I remember they told me, and, and I, I think I looked at my wife or something, and I was like, yeah, so what? Big deal. Like, all right, what's this really mean? Like, yeah, I didn't know much about cancer either, you know? I knew about much of that as when I joined the military. And uh, but everybody was like, yeah, it's like kind of a death sentence. And I was like, nah, nah, not really. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll get through this. And um, and then that was kind of the, that was how I found out. And then um, it was just more, more doctor's visits and everything. And uh, they were great though out in town. I mean, they, they, they were like, man, we, you got a great chance of surviving and this and that. And they moved quick and it was like, it was a lot real fast to try to catch up to though. And then, um, it just went from there really. Well, from that initial scan to where we are now, how many months or, or weeks have gone by by that point? So now, like right now, now, no. So, so when, point? when you, when you actually realized that you had cancer and a medical professional identified it and told you. So that was, um, about, that about was five about months, I believe. July 1st and then or just after July, beginning of July. And then I did that first scan mid January. So, so yeah, about five months, five and a half months or so. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, until I found out. Yeah. And then remind please correct me if I'm wrong. One of the physicians then saw the original scan that you've been told was all clear and they said, no, that's not all clear. Is that right? So we went, when I was, uh, the pulmonologist that did the biopsy, we would go back in and he was the one that was like, Hey, why didn't, you know, it was kind of like, well, I'm just going to ask this. I don't know why I'm asking, but I am like, why didn't you come in sooner? And I was like, I don't know. Came in as fast as I could. What do you mean? He's like, you've had this thing since January. I was like, no, I haven't. He's like, yeah. He pulled up the, the readings and everything. He's like, look right here. He's like, they noted it. They documented it. They sized it, everything, it's in there. And he's like, what do you mean? You didn't know? I was like, no, I didn't know. Why Why would I not come in, you know? And he's like, he's like, yeah, man, like they they knew. And I think his, his line was like, I mean, we, we were just before, we were like, we were beside ourselves. We didn't know what to say. And he was just like, like, man, you, you, you've been wrong, you know? And he's like, I'm a, I'm a doctor and I don't like being sued, never been sued, don't want to be sued. But he's like, I'd be suing the crap out of somebody over this one. You know, he's like, they, they really just wronged you to, to every bit of any degree. You know, he's like, this is not good. And, uh, and it, he told me, he's like, 
you know, if you had come in in January, he's like, you'd have been stage one. We'd have cut this thing out, a little bit of chemo, no big deal. Wouldn't even think twice about this. Like, darn near 100% survival rate. He's like, now, he's like, you know, you're less than half half a chance. And uh, my only saving grace at the time, they're just like, you're young and healthy, so we're just going to crush you with everything we can from now until then. And then, uh, so it just kind of went from there and then um, started doing some chemo, radiation, and surgery, cut out part of my lung to get the tumor out. And then, um, and then all during this time, um, I was kind of beside myself trying to figure out like, why wouldn't anybody tell me what's, I don't get this. And then uh, um, I had actually scheduled an appointment to see the hospital commander. And, and uh, at this time I still really wasn't, I wasn't angry about anything. I didn't know anything. It was just kind of like, okay. Um, I, I think I went because I was like, I'm going to at least tell him what's going on. Like he would want to know, like who, who wouldn't want to know that a doctor reviewed this and never told me, you know, like I wouldn't want somebody like that under my hospital. And I went and um, the, the really the catalyst to how this all started was I talked to him for a while and uh, just very uncaring, just didn't seem to care, just gave me crap answers, kind of blew me off. And then uh, I asked, I said something and, and his response is, this is what really pushed this whole thing. Is And he goes, he looks at me, and he goes, oh, you know, things do happen. And I was like, whoa, really? I hope you didn't. Like, Man, he just said that to me, like. Yeah, things happen, but not these things, you know, like, and, uh, and I walked out and I, I couldn't even process what had happened. And then I think it was, you know, the next day or something, cause my command had gone with me and everything, um, which I'm glad cause they kind of protected me, um, through that. But I think after that, I was just like, I, I'm not, I can't sit here and take this, you know, and like, if they're doing this to me, they're doing it to everybody. And, uh, so from there, we kind of remembered what the doc said. And then uh, the wife started calling uh, attorneys like all across the state. I mean, close to a dozen or so. Same thing, you know, tell your story. Oh, so sad. That's sorry. Nothing you can do. We, we went to, to JAG. We, we filed ICE complaints. I mean, we did everything, everything you think of. And it, it was just like, you know, nobody cares. These ICE complaints, like, what are they going to do? And then the other one that got me was, um, yeah, I forget who it was, but they, they're like, oh, yeah, you just fill out this form, write it all down, and we'll take care of it. And I'm like, do you really? And then somebody I really trusted was like, they, they actually will. They'll look into it. If you write, if you fill this out, they really will. And I was like, well, when did this? So I went and did it, and I had this whole thing written out. It was like a page and a half, and they're like, I was like, so when do I find out what the corrective punishment was? And they're like, oh, you never will. And I was like, no, that's BS, man. Like, if I screw up, everybody's going to know about it across the whole base, you know? And I was like, I just want to know that somebody's corrected this. And uh, and that was another one. I was like, all right, clearly this isn't going to be the way it goes. And um, we had done the attorney stuff and pretty much got nowhere. And I was slowly giving up on that course and trying to figure out something new. I was just kind of at a loss. But then my mom was like, oh, you know, I got an attorney agreed to talk to you. And uh, so come over and we'll talk. And I was like, all right, you know, I'm, I'm only going to do this because it's mom, but I have no faith in this conversation. So I go through the whole story again. There's probably four, four or five people on the phone. And uh, 
I tell the whole story and it's just quiet, it's silent. And I'm like, oh great. It's a waste of my time. I look stupid in front of my mom. Whatever. You know, I'm just so just not depressed, but just giving up. And uh finally, and uh out of the background, out of nowhere, you just hear this voice go, So what are we gonna do about it? But it's like, who is this? Like, <laughs> nobody ever says anything other than sorry, good luck, you know. And, and it was this woman in the background, Natalie Kwong, and she is going a mile a minute. Just what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? We need to get this and we need to get that. And I like, I remember for the first time in a while, like I was like, I felt alive again. I was like, Oh my God, like somebody seems to care. And, uh, it just kind of, kind of went from there is what started it. And then I started getting paperwork to them and everything. And, uh, that was kind of uh, what started it off, how I found an attorney that was willing to help. Beautiful. Well, I mean, not beautiful as far as the story. It's tragic, right, yeah. especially when you've been told you got terminal cancer and they go, well, you know, these things happen. Right. I'm, I'm sure when you said protect you, you're probably talking about protecting the doctor from fucking murdering him at that point because yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd need yeah, to be yeah. held back as well. Um, I want to bring Max in a second just so we can do a, a kind of background yeah. story of this thing that was this you know barrier that you were about to discover i had uh manny vega on the show a few weeks ago talking about losing his son patrick um also a very powerful conversation about his experience in the catholic church and and the abuse which uh, i think a lot of people need to listen to as well but the um the ferris doctrine he gave us a backstory too but for people that haven't listened to that maybe won't listen to that um max if i could bring you in kind of give us the the background the history on on the inception of this issue and then kind of walk us through to where you know you cross paths with richard and, and we'll move forward from there sure um well i'm, I'm first i think it's important to say the uh manny is how i i got i got i got pulled into this story uh, manny is how i met richard manny is how i met desdel barba manny is how i met uh essentially rebecca Leip. uh manny is how i met manny um and briefly i think it's important to set that context up that you know um about a year and a half ago feels like maybe almost two years ago uh year and a half ago um i i got a linkedin uh, note from from manny vega and this is the first time i'd ever heard of him and um he wrote a very brief message via LinkedIn. And essentially what he had conveyed is that uh, he was a Marine. Um, his son had gone um, to Marine boot camp, and uh, that was 2018. And within 10 days, um, his son died uh, in on base during training. Um, due to what Banny alleged was uh, to oversimplify, you know, medical malpractice. And, you know, he's, he said that he had reached out to me because he, or maybe it was his daughter had found um, my name through a story that I had written almost 20 years ago, where I mentioned uh, the fairies doctrine. And that was to oversimplify Oh, four, two stories that dealt with military injustice and the Ferris Doctrine came into play. 
And it was the first time I ever heard about it. And I, those two stories were probably like 8,000 words each, which in magazine land, those are long stories. But the first doctrine got maybe two or three paragraphs because once you know what the first doctrine is, to it's almost a distraction isn't the right word, but it deserves its own coverage. And each of these tragedies that I was writing about at the time, they deserved to breathe in the space that I had. It wasn't a time to do a legal story. It was a time to address the un, the injustice that was perpetrated upon these multiple families back in 2004. And the reason that these families back then could not get what they believed was justice was because of the Ferry's Doctrine. And here's what the Ferry's Doctrine is. Um, and when Manny said that, the Ferry's Doctrine, because I didn't address it 20 years ago, he, he touched on literally the only thing at that point, and I guess 20 years that I felt was unfinished business. Um, I had always made a mental note to get back to it. And, um, you know, I've, I've said this to Richard and to other folks, but, you know, I have a 21 year old and a 20 year old son. I have two kids and, um, you know, there's no other way to put it. Uh, you know, when a father is talking to you about losing his son, um, that's going to resonate. And then he brings up the Furries doctrine and I'm like, you got me. You know, I, I'll finish this piece I'm working on and I'm coming back. So I should I just want to say that everything that happened in this piece, um, the reason that you're talking to Richard and I right now is all born of basically Manny's outreach in that moment. So what the Furry's Doctrine is, is in. Um, in 1950, three cases reached the Supreme Court. To oversimplify all of these cases are filed by families of uh, decedent active duty service members and their families have alleged that the causes of death in all three of cases to oversimplify amounts to uh, a combination of egregious medical malpractice and in some instances dereliction of duty. And they are filing, they want to file civil tort claims for damages. That's 1950. What's really important here and quickly is in 1946, Congress passed something called the Federal Tort Claims Act. For the first time in the history of our nation, until, until 1946, you could not sue the federal government and, and any of its entities like the Department of Defense, et cetera, because the federal government was claiming that it was a sovereign, a sovereign power. So you couldn't file suit. That's the oversimplification. In so that's nineteen. That's nine up until nineteen forty six. In nineteen forty six, things happen, and there's public pressure, and Congress passes something called the Federal Tort Claims Act. And what the Federal Tort Claims Act does for the first time in history is it creates exceptions um, to the to the sovereign immunity and creates exceptions wherein you can sue. And one of the uh, basically it states that if you're a member of the military, you cannot sue for any any uh, injury or death that happens in combat activities. That seems like a no brainer. You know, you've just heard Richard talk about, you know, when you sign up, you know, 
risk is a part of it. Combat risk is a part of it. Stuff that happens in the heat of battle and the cliched fog of war, that's just part of the deal. And that's why we're grateful to our active duty service members. However, what the Federal Tort Claims Act, it seemed clearly laid out, was that any alleged uh, wrongful death or injury that happens outside of combatant activities is potentially a tort claim. Okay, 1946, that happens. Now you fast forward to 1950, you have these three cases that hit the Supreme Court. One of the cases was uh, Ferries. He, that's who the, it's named after, just because alphabetically he's the first of the three plaintiffs. Ferris was killed in a barracks fire, and his family alleged that the conditions of the barracks were so egregiously bad, and the fire watch on duty was basically non-existent, that that was a wrongful death. Another plaintiff's family, um, he was uh, Jefferson, and he went into a medical hospital for a surgery, had an abdominal surgery. Shortly thereafter, he's in agonizing pain. He goes back to the hospital. They open him up and they find that the doctors have left a 30 inch long towel in his abdomen. Another guy dies because of medical malpractice. And essentially, in the court essentially dismisses all of these cases and says that they cannot sue. And, and they say that Congress, when they wrote the Federal Tort Claims Act, did not actually mean to write the law the way they wrote it. And and experts, legal minds on both sides of this issue have said that is one of the greatest examples of judicial overreach they've ever seen. What the Supreme Court was saying is, you know, they were divining Congress's intent when they wrote the law. But if you just look at the statute itself, it's plain as day. Since then, 1950, approximately seven cases have reached the Supreme Court, all ferries related. And there's a, there's a concept in, in law called stereodysis, and it's a, it's a phrase that just means when a court rules, it maintains its, its uh, original precedent, its original logic in sustaining the finding of the Supreme Court, right? Or the original finding by the, by the court. The unique thing about the seven cases that happened since 1950 is the court almost all of the different cases that found their way to the court, they were all ferries related. They each had their own unique nuances. And the court seemed to go out of its way to come up with a new rationale to justify the original ruling by the 1950 court. And it got to the point where like, in 1987, a case reaches the court, and this is Scalia. He's not the most liberal judge in the world, right? This is one of the most conservative judges ever to be on the court. And he says, Ferris was wrongly decided and heartily deserves the widespread, almost universal criticism that is received. Liberal judges have said this on the court. Um, one of the leading minds of conservative legal thought, uh, uh, Turley, he's written at length about um, how wrongly decided uh, the first doctrine was. Um, and so the first doctrine takes its name from that decision in the first case. And the doctrine means that it's been applied essentially to every case since then. And it has prohibited. Um, we literally don't know how many people like Richard have been through medical facilities in the military and been given dire 
you know, way below substandard of care as Richard received. Um, you know, there's you could do a whole other episode uh, on Des Del Barba, who who goes in as a healthy, robust kid in into uh, boot camp, and you know he has a common case of strep throat. They blow it off. They don't diagnose it. They do die. They do find out. They don't tell him, but it's progressed so quickly. He ends up with a with the flesh eating bacteria called necrotizing fasciitis. Um, loses his gets his leg amputated. Has uh, almost fifty percent of the skin on his body replaced. He's also one of the people that that are in the piece um, along with Richard in, in Vanity Fair this month. Um, my point is is that. We don't know how many, but there's a lot. It's since 1950, right? Richard is not an isolated case. It's tragic to say, but he's not an isolated case. There are many more out there. And so when Richard links up with with Natalie Kwam, who is an amazing, you know, brain and personality, you know, she's never heard of this before. You know, I've interviewed her at length. She'd never heard of the Ferris Doctrine before. And she's trying to wrap her head around it as the as the attorney. And she consults with a with a legal colleague of hers who handles medical malpractice and says, hey, you know, she tells him Richard's story. And the guy says he's screwed. You know, the attorney says he's screwed. The only thing that could change this is an act of God or an act of Congress. So Natalie being Natalie, she basically says, well, I'm going to go do an act of Congress. Right. That's what's going to happen. And she does. Um. Her first legal strategy is that she goes to the Senate Judiciary Committee. This is like her plan A. So she basically, Richard puts on a suit. He goes to D.C. He and he and Natalie are sort of teamed up as a one-two punch, and they start walking the halls of Congress. And her idea is pretty pragmatic and smart, which is, which is Natalie Kwam. And she wants to go to the Senate Judiciary Committee and have them do what what the dissenting judges who have basically lost in the Supreme Court, all those judges who said that Ferris is is unjust and should be changed. In many of those dissenting opinions, they they basically begged Congress to act to clarify the language of the Federal Tort Claims Act. And it has never happened. So Natalie says it's time they, they address the Federal Tort Claims Act. She goes to the Republican controlled. This is around 2019. Uh, Right, Richard, 2019. She goes to the Senate Judiciary, the Republican controlled Senate Judiciary Committee, and she and Richard begin to meet and try and convince members of that committee to to do that, to change the language of the Federal Tort Claims Act. They they basically get a, a lot of support for this effort, except the head of that committee is Lindsey Graham. And what they end up hearing, Richard and Natalie, is, look, we're with you. From, from Republican members of Congress, Democratic members of Congress. But we can't do anything on this committee because it's headed by Lindsey Graham and he doesn't want to go anywhere near it. Okay, so Natalie takes Richard and they basically walk to the other side of the building and they go to the Congress, the Democratic and controlled uh, sub armed subcommittee, which is headed by Jackie Speer. And what they end up pushing, th- getting past for the, what they end up getting past is a carve out that is modeled on the workman's comp uh, model 
for medical malpractice. And um, it's signed into law. You know, there's there's a lot of drama to it, but it's signed into law. And 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 the other guy you have here on this podcast, Richard Stasekel, it's named after him. It's the Richard Stasekel Act. Um, that's a win. And, and it's potentially legally seismic for this reason. It is the first time since 1950 that Congress has essentially acknowledged that the injuries that Richard Stasekel has sustained are not barred, do not fall under combatant activities, and do deserve to have a legal remedy in and of itself. Here's the big drawback. When these families uh, suffer medical malpractice, if their loved ones die or they're profoundly life-alteringly wounded, if you've just heard Richard talk about the, the different medical procedures, where the ball has been dropped, to put it mildly, to get full accountability and full tra full transparency, really the only way to do that is discovery. And discovery process comes through filing a civil claim. So if you want to be able to hold medical professionals in the medical system responsible and accountable, you have to get their records. You have to get access to who are they. For example, in Richard's case, and I, I feel compelled to say, I don't know the answer to any of this, but we don't know if, if the doctor who looked at his chart, at least I don't. I don't know if the doctor who looked at his charts, if this is a one whoops-a-daisy, as tragic as it's fucked up as it is, or does he have 10? Who is this person? Like, what, what is his record? And maybe this is the only tragic, horrific mistake that he's made. And that is not to banish the pain and suffering that Richard has undergone, his wife and his two beautiful daughters. If, if that's it for this guy... I mean, I can't speak for Richard and his wife and family, but that's an that's a he he that that doctor can make the argument that's an isolated incident. But if he's got a track record, we won't know that. The public won't know that because you can't get access to the discovery. Um so that's the first doctrine. That that is like a a a summary of 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 1946, 1950, more or less to now. And I think it's worth mentioning two things. The first is medical malpractice is only one example of where active duty service members do not have access to, to tort justice. There's sexual harassment, there's rape, there's murder. Vanessa Gillian. Vanessa Gillian. There, there's a case that's been, been working its way, um, through the federal court system where a, uh, a, a woman, a, a member of the military um, makes a very credible allegation that she was raped. And as her attorney puts it, um, you can't, I'm paraphrasing, but we can't live in a world where you can say being raped by uh, a fellow officer or a superior officer or anyone in the military is incident to service. That's preposterous. But under the Ferris Doctrine, as it's been interpreted, it is. Now, there's the UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice. But again, the point is, without discovery, we don't know how systemic and prevalent 
the problems are in in whether it be a, a particular chain of command, a particular base in the Vanessa Guillen case, or in a particular hospital system in Richard's case. And so that's the one thing I, that's point one. And point two is, you know, you look at things like the Stayskill Act and Richard, that's a, it's a huge victory for Richard and, and, and so many who are in his similar positions. Um, but that's a workaround. You're still not addressing the flux capacitor obstruction to what would be true justice. Why did we need the PAC Act? Right. These, these are, these are all workarounds indirectly to avoid to have congress avoid dealing with the core issue which is the language of the federal tort claims act and this and the sustained i would submit and and many others would submit injustice of the ferries doctrine well just i want to bring richard in but just but just to respond to that what is so disappointing as a civilian learning about this someone not in the military but equally as appalled in the fire service the worst thing you can ever witness is a near miss or god forbid even something worse that gets swept under the carpet because just like you said there's no accountability other people outside aren't able to learn from that mistake and make sure they don't and therefore the potential for this to happen over and over and over again is incredible so yes of course you need the financial um element to support a family god forbid they're going to lose their loved one but the accountability element is as if not more important to make sure as you said if it was an anomaly and you were just extremely unlucky and just happened to be in the sequence of ball dropping um but it was a one-time thing okay well you verified that but how many maniacal members of the medical community have been caught killing their patients you know with with euthanasia whatever it is and it was only when they were finally discovered that that finally stopped so there's you know that that double-edged element is so important for the average person to be aware of this and push also for it to be changed whether it's just through conversation and and um awareness of this because i mean as you said if it's if no one's ever held accountable if they're hiding behind a a veil how how are you ever going to stop the dominoes think you ever can unless you start talking about it yeah the hard the hard part is i mean again these are my my opinions and thoughts but like you know the act was signed two years ago i haven't seen any award or anything you know and and like when i look into it and inquire about it like i'll even ask congress there's nothing you can do about it there's it's it's literally like Sometimes I feel like DOD is a, a, a branch of a branch of uh, government in itself, you know. And it's like I've asked this question numerous times. So who can make them do anything? And the answer is never anything you want to hear. It's like so they respond to themselves, you know. And uh, again, it's my opinions, and that's just the way the views are, you know. And how do you ever close anything out if you don't ever know what happened? But they're bigger than you. They're stronger than you. They can outlast you. They can do, seems like they can do anything they want, you know? And it's, it's, it's quite awful what they're personally, what they're doing. And they, and the, and the, the thing with the fairies is it's skewed into their favor. And, and that's why it's so baffling is because you're like, Oh, this time it's this. And then this time it's that. And you're like, you just contradicted yourself. 
but what are you going to do about it? You know, and uh, there was one point I'll, there's one point where, where Richard was um, dealing with a member of Congress or, or some of their aides and I'm paraphrasing. I'm sure Richard will hip check me if I get this off. Um, but essentially, you know, he was told, Richard was told, you know, you're opening up a Pandora's box here, right? You're, 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 you're causing, you're causing potential problems. And I'm not going to do justice to the eloquence and the, and the succinctness of what Richard's response was, but it amounted to, um, I don't know. I thought that the law was supposed existed to do exactly that, to, to expose injustice and shine a light on injustice and it seems like you coming to me saying that I'm the problem, maybe you should find a mirror because perhaps you're the problem. You're the one that keeps wants to keep these things quiet and in the box. Isn't the isn't the point of all of this to open it up and fix it and get it right? Absolutely. Just as a side note, is that your dog or have you got bad bad guts going on at the moment? That's my dog. And, and he, <laughs> He he feels he he feels very ignored, and I think his bladder may feel very full. To be candid, <laughs> well, we're going to wrap up in a moment because I know we've been going on quite a long time. Richard, you've got an act name after you. I mean, there are there are multiple areas that it's not doing what it needs to do, including the financial cap that I read about. What should happen if you if you could completely rewrite the law? What would it look like? to protect obviously you know you will help you and your family but also everyone else from this point on that this happens to so i've been saying since day one i would just like to be treated like a normal person in the country you know so my argument was always why can't i go against the medical professional in a civilian court just like a normal person where the would the same same laws that we protect to try to get other countries to follow, you know? And it's like we're we're rewriting something like Max said as a workaround to keep hiding things. Cause I, the issue would be if if I go to court, then it highlights what's going on. But that's all we're asking for is just to be treated, let us go to a civilian court and be treated like normal people. You know, it's 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 not a, a daunting task that we're asking, but one has to ask yourself if they won't allow you to do it, why, you know, what are you hiding? If it's not that big a deal in, in, in my opinion, and, and unless, uh, you know, I'm not the smartest guy ever, but in my opinion, I want to separate myself from the military anyways, because I love the military. I don't want to do any harm to it. I want to see it better, stronger, continue on forever. Cause I believe that the purpose is good at heart. So let me go to court with, with said person and get them away from the military, you know? And um, I mean, just in one, like one thing, the way it sits right now is, you know, uh, what is it? The damages are, it's capped at like, was it max 800,000 or something? They just got it raised to at first. It was 500 for, uh, for damages and uh, pain and suffering. It may be six. I think maybe, no, it, maybe six. It, yeah, it, let me check. And out of the way though, it's, it's like, you wouldn't go through that as a civilian and, and I get, you get the argument and I've heard this one before. Oh, you just care about money. It's like, well, what I'm talking about, what I can no longer do anymore in order to provide for my family. Like, yeah. And I think you would agree if, if you were put in the same situation, you know, and it's like, I always go back to the argument I always hear on TV and it's like, 
oh, you need a million dollars to retire at the age of 65 just to live till 80 years old. And now it's even higher, you know, and it's. The the, the non-economic compensation is capped at 600. There you go. So it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's a compensation for what I can't do because, because here's what people don't understand. You have a job, you got a career, you're in the military, but the moment they're done with you, you're out on the streets. Oh, well, you get your VA benefits. <laughs> All right. But if you're in your 20s, early 30s, and you got kids and a wife and you live anywhere that's anywhere, that, that money isn't going very far. But it's a compensation for the damages. Like, I can't go out and be a hard laborer anymore. You know, like my career is v- very select now on what I'm capable of doing. And so then, and that's what it's doing is it's, it's compensating that, you know, and I think anybody that wants to be realistic with themselves can understand that. And it's like, I'm not asking for $5 billion and to be an instant God amongst the rich and famous. I'm just looking at, are they going to compensate me enough that will offset the standards of care that are living that I don't have anymore or are unable to provide. And, and what it comes back down to at the end of the day is I just want to be treated like a human being, like a normal civilian that has the same rights that you've asked me to defend and protect. And, and, and I think, I think an important caveat here, James, is that many times when I would speak to Richard, and and his record of service to this country is unassailable in this regard. And if you listen to Richard talk, whether you agree or disagree with him, his his opinion is clear. This is not somebody that is looking to create a legal mechanism to challenge a chain of command that is that is uh, engaged in our national defense in wartime activities. Right stuff. I, I hate to use the phrase that that doctor used with Richard, but in a civilian hospital setting like Richard was in, that kind of stuff should not happen. When you're doing triage on the battlefield, like look at the way that corpsman ran to Richard. If that corpsman had made a decision in the heat of the moment and there had been a circumstance and he had done so trying to save Richard's life. And it had been an incorrect decision or he had done something that he that, you know, was, quote, wrong. That happened in combat and the guy is trying to save that person's life. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is peacetime, like uh, uh, in, in the case of medical malpractice, hospitals where they just blew it. They blew it over and over with Richard and with countless others. And when he says he, like when I hear him say he wants to be treated just like others, I think it's important to point out he, that's not in combat, right? Like he's not, whatever his, his recovery, like you, there was a sort of a, a gallows humor here about his, his recovery or whatever medical treatment he received after what happened to him in Iraq. That's not on the table. That's that's it. Like that's that's what you sign up for. He did not sign up for this. No one signs up for this. He deserved better than this. They all deserve better than this. And there is bipartisan support out there to fix it. And it's not getting fixed. It's not getting addressed. 
Well, just another perspective coming from a civilian firefighter and paramedic. I being a being British, you know, born and bred, um, I hear a lot of rhetoric, you know, against socialized medicine, which we that's not what it's called, it's national health. It's an altruistic program that, you know, takes care of everyone. And this our medical, you know, world put on a, on a pedestal, like oh, in, in in England, people just die in the waiting rooms. But you actually hear and see, as a paramedic does with their own eyes, the dark side of American medicine, and it's fucking completely broken. And there are some phenomenal doctors and nurses out there, and there are some medications that work incredibly well. Um, but if you look globally at how we rank, we have a for profit healthcare system. So the patient is not at the origin of our medical you know, world in the US. And when I look at the UK, which is broken at the moment because it's underfunded and understaffed and they're trying to privatize certain areas, at its core, it is actually trying to take care of the British people. And if you really look at it and you got people that actually knew how to run business taking care of it, you would realize that the proactive element would save your money hand over fist in that situation. So by putting the patient first, I guarantee first. you in that st situation, you would end up with far fewer patients, therefore a lot more time with each patient, and then probably a lot less you know, malpractice and mistakes. Now you look in the US, you have our civilian healthcare system, you have the military healthcare system, and, you know, we keep beating our chest saying everything is the greatest country in the world. Well, healthcare, coming from a healthcare provider, I disagree. And the way that when COVID happened, oh, it's so bad, people are in the hallways. Well, you just heard we had a, a decorated Marine slash, you know, Green Beret who was shot through the lungs prior, is coughing up blood, and he gets sent to, to triage to sit in the waiting room for hours on end. I, I'm, I've been the medic that's wheeled you in a thousand times and they've, you know, I've come back in like, what the fuck are you doing in a chair? You know, this is the, the healthcare system inside and outside of the military that we are in, in the greatest country in the world. And I disagree. I think that we have so much work to do, not only what we talked about today, but in medicine in general, because this kind of malpractice, like you said, what's our go to? It is, you know, lawsuits and these are these good doctors are then paying through through the, the nose for their insurance. And this just, you know, some people are getting rich and rich, but the patient is never, ever winning in this whole situation. The last thing I'll the last thing I'll say on this medical point, I just want to get out before I forget is, you know, there's a lot of reporting that you do for a story that doesn't make it into a story for whatever reason. And I actually spoke to a decades veteran uh in the medical profession um and this individual told me that when he, he was coming out of med school he consciously made the choice to forego a civilian career in medicine where he knew he could have made more money and he was choosing to go into the medical profession because he knew i mean he he wasn't he knew he couldn't get sued you, you can't get sued. So you're a doctor and you're a medical professional. Now he would, this is a, a good human being, right? Like this wasn't, he's not planning on, you know, killing people or, or hurting people. But when you're coming out of med school and you're looking at the, the, the student loans that you have and you're trying to project a career and a quality of life, medical malpractice suits are, to put it mildly, a potential drag on your future and your future earnings. The Ferris Doctrine completely insulates 
all medical professionals from any and all accountability and that kind of responsibility to the point where professionals coming out of med school choose to go into medical professions in the service because they know there's nothing, anything anyone can do to them. That's crazy. You know, and, and as a, the thing is, as a, if a listener is, is wondering, why should I care, right? I'll give you one. I hate even talking about this because I it bothers me that it's this way, but it's like, I'll tell you one reason why you should care. If you don't care about me or us or whatever, think about the amount of tax dollars that's going to my healthcare to try to keep me alive because one person couldn't take 10 minutes to notify me over this. And it bothers me. I mean, there's been over the years that I've been sick, like that tears me down. It's like, I am costing people tax dollars, time and effort when they should be helping others and I should be totally fine. You know what I mean? But for one person's bad decision and the fact that there's no accountability and we seem to be okay with it, it's like, we're just going to come after me and say, well, you signed up for that rather than worrying about this guy's still out there or this girl or whatever. I mean, as far as we know, anyways, I, I don't know. That's the, the other thing to Max's point, you know, and it's like, that should upset you. That should be the reason that you're, you're, you're calling Natalie at the Quam Rivka firm and or calling your congressman or senator and complaining about this. It's like, you know, you want your tax dollars to go to education or something good, not this. And I agree with you. Shouldn't go to this. But it is because nobody cares, you know? Well, and what's sad is you've just kind of, um, what's the right word, mirrored something that I talk about a lot when it comes to fixing things in the first responder community. I mean, we have an amazing profession that I adore. And again, it's not pulling a violin and saying, poor me, but we lose firefighters and, and police officers left, right and center, corrections, dispatch, EMS. And you look at the shifts and the organization, you know, the, I mean, all these things, they compound and they break these people down. They take their own lives. They turn to, you know, substances, they have heart disease and cancer and you name it. And I have the same conversation. If you proactively invest in this workforce, you would save money hand over fist now, what really pisses me off as someone who's very spiritual but doesn't adhere to a certain religion is you go to your fucking church or mosque or synagogue and, you know, repeat all these things about being a good person. And then you go out into the real world and you make decisions that only money will, will sway you. You know, you don't care about these people that actually are in uniform that are protecting your community or country. I find that fucking nauseating personally. If you... If someone comes to you and says, we're losing people to X, Y, and Z, and that doesn't resonate with you, don't go, don't go to your fucking church anymore. You know, go find some satanic lodge and start worshiping there because you're not walking the walk of any of the good books that I've studied of all these different religions. You're missing the fucking point completely. So what should resonate is your soldiers, your sailors, your airmen, your firefighters, your police officers are dying and we need to change the, you know, the thing that's happened. We've made mistake X, Y, and Z. We need to change this law so that we don't lose any, any more. And that's what, you know, if we can't get people to understand the human element, then at least take that fucking sticker off your car that says you're a good person because you're not. Right. And it's weird too, isn't it? Like it seems like the medical whole piece and community in the world, it's like the worse you do, the more richer, the richer you get. But yet if you ran a normal business like that, if you're like, I'm going to let my McDonald's just crash and burn. You know, you'd be boarding it up going away, but it's complete opposite. 
but you think you think it'd be more profitable and it'd be it'd be a hard turnaround because we've dug ourselves in such a hole. But my argument's always been like, if I bet you if we fix this, you would get longer retention, healthier soldiers, better people to deploy and train overall, and you'd get better quality physicians. I think the whole thing would change. And if, if we just change the whole perspective and start having a little bit of accountability and a little bit of uh, standards, you know, and that whole, like I said, the perspective, why is it always going to be so negative? Why can't we just make it good and then it changes and everything's good? Yeah. And again, and it would save money. And like I tell people as right. an example, we used to send children up chimneys and have them working in factories. And one day someone right. says, wait a second, these children are dying. It's not very good for them. Let's not do that anymore. We're at the right. same point now with our first responders and we're at the same point with this particular topic that we've been discussing today. Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to round this off, but you talked about um, you know, some of the treatments that you've had, all, all these things that have been thrown at you. Talk to me about you know, the, the results of that. I mean, is it, is it looking optimistic now? I mean, what, what are the outcomes of some of the, the treatments that you've had, if you want to share uh, that? So overall, I mean, I, I did traditional chemo in the beginning. I had part of my lung cut out, um, a bunch of radiation. Uh, surgeries on other spots to cut tumors out and, and whatnot. And uh, I, in the beginning, I did all that. And then I went on pills for a little bit, those stopped. And then I went on a clinical trial down in uh, Moffitt Cancer Center down in Florida. You know, it's going back and forth between Duke and there. And then uh, I settled with my physician down in at Moffitt and uh, he put me, or I'm sorry, I, I was there. And then he actually moved to Duke, which worked out for me because in North Carolina. Then when it came back, um, because I'm technically stage four and uh, which is terminally ill. He sent me back down to Moffitt where he was running a clinical on a, on a total hell Mary. You know, he's like, there's, there was nothing left for me at the time other than just crushing me with chemo and radiation and surgeries. And uh, so I went down there and did that. And, and um, you know, they always tell me, they're like, you know, once you're stage four, you're always stage four. There's, there's no coming back from it, but everything's holding off for now, you know? So it's, uh, all the scars are there from the tumors and everything, but, um, I, I'm about as good as you could get if, if that makes any sense or kind of, uh, helps out. But, um, I'm, I'm not, not out of the woods by any means. I'm still technically stage four. Um, I go in, I'm at, I'm at least at every three months for scans and treatments, which is great. I was doing every month. I was traveling to Florida, um, which between the mental stress before treatment and then after the physical, I mean, I was lucky to get two good weeks out of the month for the last two and a half years. So right now I'm kind of, I'm, I'm doing as best as I could. So things are, things are good right now. Well, that's so good to hear. Now, Muffet, is that Miami? Uh, Tampa, Florida. Oh, it's Tampa. Okay. All right. Well, next, yeah. one of the next times that you're coming, I don't know if that would work as far as how you feel, you know, right before, right after, but we'll have to try and meet up because I'm in Ocala. So I'm only just over an hour away from Tampa. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Definitely. So brilliant. All right. Well, I'll, I'll stay with you for a moment. Is there anything that you want to impart on people before we wrap this up and, um, let Max's dog finally pee? <laughs> yeah no i know max has his uh his stuff but uh you know i just want to say if you if you if you're out there and, and you've got the time call a congressman congresswoman senator uh 
keep trying to push for the change of uh, the act to uh, to make it just a little bit better. You know, there's always room for improvement. And then, you know, if you got anything um, you think can help, you know, if you want to reach out to Natalie Quam, who's there is no other like her. You know, like I said, she works for the Quam Ripka firm, and um, and they're they're I'm I'm not saying it for any reason like I'm getting anything out of this. I'm not. They're just I said head of a country full of attorneys. Only one even gave me the time of day. Um, I, I love her like family, and I always will. You know, I really I owe my life to her. And um, so, if you got anything that can help her out, I just ask anybody reach out to her and you know send it to her. And then, if people want to reach out to you, are there any places online or social media that they can? So I'm not really on social media that much, but uh, it's not that hard to find me either. <laughs> Perfect. It's a true Green Beret. All right. <laughs> All right. Then, Max, same thing with you. Kind of any parting words? No, I, I, I'll echo what Richard said. I think, although a little bit more assertively and strongly, um, you know, we, li- we I think we live in a country, um, particularly, it feels like to me now, where um, both sides, the middle, all around, People are talking about what it means to be a patriot and what it means to be an American and what it means to honor the Constitution. And the one thing I think there is no debate on is that our our active duty servicemen and women uh, personified for this conversation, you know, by Richard Stasekel, they are, they're walking the walk every day. And this Ferris Doctrine is an affront to them. It is anti-American. It is not patriotic. It is unjust. And we could debate for a whole week the reasons why it has been sustained. But there's no debating that it's wrong and it should be changed. And I think the patriotic thing for anybody who's listening to this program to do is get in touch with their congressional representative and not tolerate it. What are you doing to change the Ferris Doctrine? What are you doing to address the Federal Tort Claims Act? And until you do, don't walk in a Veterans Day parade, don't walk in a Memorial Day parade, until you actually get the job done on behalf of the people, the men and women who are getting it done for us. That would be thing one, I would say. Thing two I would throw out there is you had on Manny Vega recently, and Manny Vega with his family, Kate and and Amy, as you I'm sure you discussed, have created a nonprofit called Save Our Service Members, has a website where they have begun to accumulate an archive of photos and vignettes of all of, of, of active duty service men and women who have either died or suffered you know, unspeakable tragedies um, because of alleged medical malpractice or other forms of, for lack of a better phrase, dereliction of duty, and to support their efforts. That is one place where where you could also go. So your congressmen, your con- congressional representatives, you know, support Natalie Quam in any way you can and, and save our service members. And um, I mean, that's pretty much, I think, all we can do at this moment. 
And, and James, you know, at the end of the day, if, if those aren't any of your favorites, anything you do for a vet or a service member is a-okay with me. They're all great things out there. Yeah. But I mean, you, like you hit on though, you know, Veterans Day, Memorial Day, if you want to do something other than, you know, a social media post or thanking someone for their service, then this is an actionable thing that everyone listening can do. If enough letters and emails come in and awkward conversations, if you happen to grab the person by the hand, then right. maybe, you know, collectively we can force change. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. Well, Max, staying on you for a second, same thing. You've obviously done a lot of... Uh, um, writing on the military as we've discussed you have everything from i was going to hit you on this but we just we don't have any time now but you know wine and um uh the uh abuse in hollywood and all these different other topics that you've talked about josh brolin <laughs> um where can people find your work and where on social media if any uh i'm i'm pretty active on twitter um you know find every way to basically shoot my mouth off twitter is one of them um I'm I'm just a Google search away for anybody to to reach out to. Um, I've been doing this for so long that like the first half of my career predates the internet, so you're not going to find that anywhere. But um, you know, my stuff's out there, and uh, the book that you reference is called Shadows in the Vineyard. It's completely unlike anything we're discussing now, but it's about a crime that happened um, in France where some some bad guys. Uh, extorted and committed a most unusual crime against a winery in France that produces the world's rarest, most expensive wine. Um, so that was another crime I reported. Um, the only, the only injuries there were vines. Um, so <laughs> much more pleasant experience, but that's it. You know, I'm on the internet. You can find me. Um, if you're finding me to harass me, please don't. Um, that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I just want to say thank you both. We've been talking for two and a half hours. My dog is also looking at me through the glass saying, really? Um, so I need to take her out as well. But it's been an incredible conversation as we, as we talked, you know, briefly before we hit record. Two very different journeys, but it's amazing when we have conversations like this, you know, when your, your paths crossed, how powerful those two different paths became when you kind of combine that. And the, to use Green Beret terminology, the force multiplier, I mean, that absolutely is what happened when you guys met. So I want to thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. I appreciate it. Thank you, James. Thanks for, for getting, the, getting the word out about the first doctrine. Thank you. Thank you.